Blog Talk Radio.
the creator. Cisanthropus was the first man found on the earth. That earth was the motherland, Africa. We know that without total understanding of what happened in the past, it would be difficult to relate to the future. We know that within the structure of the music, there should be a message, and the message should be truth. So now, we give you Africa, the center of the world. That's right. Africa is the center of the world. It's the nucleus that make all things run. We welcome you to another episode here on the 16th day of January 2022 to Africa on the Move. As your host, Brother Africa, we're going to be in the seat and we're going to take the heat. As we define it, we're going to stand behind it. We're going to come and speak truth to the powerless and the powerful. And we encourage you to come and join us. By calling 323-679-0841, hit 1, and we acknowledge your last four numbers. Our theme tonight is a reflection on events of the past year, 2021. That's right. We're going to do some reflection on some of the past events and programs and topics that may have been discussed this past year, and we'd like for you to share with us. What are some of the highlights, some of the major events, some of the most important things that took place this past year that you think of significance as related to year 2021? That's going to be our program for today. But in order to get started with our party, you know how we do it. We always like to introduce our political panelists and analysts for today's program. So at this point in time, we can get started with our party by bringing in Brother Haiki. And we're going to welcome him to Africa on the Move. Welcome, Brother Haiki. Uh, <clears throat> Brother Africa, thanks for having me. My name is Haiki Kamafi Mishoki. And, of course, Brother Africa, you know, my thing is all about institution building. But uh, let me, but I got to tell you, Brother Africa, um, one, of, one, of my, one of my concerns is this whole question in terms of the relevance of history. Uh, often we talk about 
just how important history is important, how important history is in terms of understanding the kind of problems that pervade society, you know, um, all too often. Uh, but in thinking about the, the, the relevance of history, you know, um, we can't divorce the history from the, the evolution of imperial states. Even in America, we have an excessive amount of imperialism. Many of the populace is simply un, you know, unaware in terms of the extent that this is a pure society, and as a consequence, they don't really grasp the kind of very real danger they're in, not only in terms of lack of opportunity in the society, but also fundamental destruction and death at the hands of the society. So I thought I'd write a little bit about the historical significance and why, that's, why history is so, so important. Let me Brother Africa, check this out. History as a science is probably the most effective discipline that can be used to assess the rise and fall of society. When Hitler was chancellor, he pushed the Enabled Act, designating himself dictator for at least four years. Trump emphatically talked about ending presidential terms, thus upending the 22nd Amendment that promulgated the amendment to prevent abuse of power and or political corruption. History catalogs the impact of governmental overreach and abuse of power, which results in tragedy to both people and the nation state. History is, without a doubt, a necessity for time analysis at a time of a precarious world, of a precarious world repeatedly demonstrated throughout time. Now, implicit in the historical analysis is the role of economics. Acting as a barometer of sorts, engaging both trends and human interactions assessments of the level of cohesion within society. In the case of imperialism, certain historical events tend to manifest themselves among imperial states, leading to decline and ultimate end to empire. Historically, the class-latent British Empire initially excelled at imperialism, in fact, the most prolific empire by controlling over 500 million subjects throughout the world. Even this unprecedented level of control over other states' natural resources was not sufficient enough to forestall the encroachment of imperial overreach, i.e., the funding of World War One and World War Two, and a massive impoverishment of its citizens locked in a class system where only the aristocrats truly matter. Like all empires, the British Empire imperial system epitomized the logical outcomes of a system that excludes both working people from the economic participation. The inevitable outcomes are highlighted by three variables, variables which are antithetical to an effective economy. They are hyperinflation, two, corruption, and thirdly, Political extremism. In the annals of imperialism, widely practiced by the West, West and its allies, two countries qualify as the embodiment of imperial decline when these three variables intersect, creating a paradigm whereby reversing political course is simply impossible and decline or self emulation is inevitable. The two nations are Germany and the U.S. Germany first. In hindsight, Germany's imperial political economic decline can be attributed to both external and eternal forces that adversely impacted the German economy. Under the Treaty of Versailles, other imperial states like the U.S. and the U.K. imposed on Germany a fine for 132 billion gold marks, the equivalent of $269 billion a day. These reparation payments were supposed to be a deterrent to future German aggression, but the payouts were extended to other, by other imperial powers and subsequently paid off in the year 2010. This begs the question, if the reparations payments were designed to prevent Germany from rebuilding its military, why such lenient payment plan? Obviously, human rights were less of a concern than Germany as an export market for other imperial powers' products. After all, what Germany did was not so bad. 
These payments did present high hardships. With German economy in disarray, the highly inflated currency resulted in the creation of new currencies in hopes of sustaining economic stability. The ensuing economic instability vastly increased poverty with corresponding levels of anger. This anger manifests in two coup attempts in 1921 and 1923. In 1921, the Kalpash movement attempted to overthrow the Weimar Republic. In 1923, Hitler, Hitler, along with his Confederates, attempted to foment a coup by threatening the lives of three Bavarian officials to participate in the coup. It failed. However, the momentum of this discontent was palpable. The paramilitary wing of the Nazi party, the SA, in 1920 was able to recruit 6,000 people in a matter of months. By the end of the year, over 100,000 people attended a Nazi rally in Nuremberg. Does anyone see the parallel between government acquiescence or covert support or right-wing ideology in an appeal that has among many of the population? If not, perhaps you should need to think about Trump, his wealthy, his wealthy conservatives, and the January 6th insurrection. And by the way, I should also point out, U.S. intelligence officials expect by 2024 will be a defining point in history, uh, in the U.S. history by, 2030, by 2030. They say by, by 2030, the U.S. may well be a right-wing autocratic state supported by factions of the U.S. military. Just like all authoritarian regimes, civil and human rights will be suspended in favor of the powerful maintaining, maintaining total control. Now, in the case of the U.S., if hyperinflation, corruption, and political extremism is an indication of decline, the U.S. is it. The level of corruption is so encoded in its institutions that certainly its presence can be challenging. In fact, the House Select Committee investigating the January 6th insurrection obtained thousands of records from state officials, many of which were faked or forged certificates declaring Trump the winner in two states he lost. Both Arizona and Michigan officials took legal action to prevent the fraudulent scheme from expropriating or stealing fake steals, but the forged documents were released to the public anyway. Now, the role of money is crucial to understanding corruption and the decline of Western economies generally, generally in the U.S. specifically. In the U.S., excessive money printing we take for granted is directly responsible for a declining economy and unsustainable inequality it engenders. Money printing has contributed to record numbers of corporate mergers, creating monopolies. For monopolies comes ease at setting prices well above anything reasonable. For example, used cars now are more expensive than, uh, than, than old used cars are more expensive than new cars or the cost of housing, or even food. As of 2019, there has been 49,849 mergers. Of these mergers, the beneficiaries of these mergers is not the U.S. economy, but private equity firms. Private, private equity firms buy companies where they are restructured to make more profitable, and sold off piece by piece. Think of the ER and emergency room, which is privately owned. Restructuring of companies often entails selling off of pensions, and, and it is all perfectly legal. Mergers are directly implicated in unemployment. Unfortunately, the government does not necessarily see this as a bad thing. According to Ford, Alan Greenspan, former Federal Reserve chairman, worker insecurity is good for the economy. In other words, too many people working is bad for profits. Unfortunately, the 15% inflation rate currently in the U.S. inspired by mergers increases the level of distrust and anger toward government. While this is unfortunate, anger grows even more pronounced in consideration of larger companies with more complex structures, which makes corruption inevitable. 
the Pentagon is any example, the loss of $21 trillion is instructive. Because the $21 trillion laws had to have been a computer crime, since $21 trillion in physical dollars in one place does not exist, the question is, what is the difficulty electronically following up the money? Given recently there was an audit conducted over a year at an expense of $230 billion. $230 million, I'm sorry. Now, concerns are even more compounded by the fact access to Pentagon sustained audits deemed illegal where congressional oversight is extremely limited. Given the Pentagon's sprawling computer networks concerning, concerning concealing these funds would be should be relatively easy, which was pointed out by the recent audit in which they held. Now, given Pentagon example, bigger companies can avail themselves of similar strategies, making it difficult for the government to access taxes owed by corporations. The bottom line is these aforementioned variables serve as a prognosticator, predicting the viability the viability of U.S. capitalism or capitalism generally, which does not bode well for the future. University of Maryland poll recently indicated 34% of U.S. population believe violence against the U.S. government is justified, while 46% say that they are not proud of the U.S., and many of these are on the right. History has been very clear. The ability of the government to redirect, popul- to redirect populist anger is relatively easy to do. If this is the case, that you think the American the American government is any different from empires of the past, or will they convert, will they convert convertly support right-wing extremism? If the current U.S. Congress and the ruling class is any indication, they already are facilitating state violence against the people. We have to understand the nature of the beast, and uh, we have to have organization. We need those institutions because the, the historical uh, imperative mandates that we not only understand the challenges that we are facing with, but be in a position to be in a position to rebuff uh, those kinds of um, direct that uh, are certainly coming our way. Now, close with that, brother Africa. Thank you, brother Haki. They often say those who fail to learn their history and others are doomed to repeat the same thing. So get on board, brothers and sisters. Let's learn our history and the rest of the world. Because if we know what took place in the past, it's a good indication. It's a good indicator of what we can um, expect that may happen in the future if we don't change it correctly. Thank you, Brother Hackey. Brother Anthony, come talk to us. Welcome to Africa on the Moon. Thanks for having me, Brother Africa. And revolutionary greetings to you. Uh, the fellow panelists and the listening audience. My name is Anthony Williams. I'm an organizer for the All African Peoples Revolutionary Party, GC. Objective is Pan-Africanism, the total liberation and unification of Africa under scientific socialism. Thank you, Brother Anthony. Following Brother Anthony. We now will bring in Brother Moses, and we would like to welcome him as well to Africa on the Moon. Brother Moses. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Africa, and greetings to everyone within the sound of my voice, especially the illustrious panelists. My name is Robert Andrew Moses. I've been in the struggle for scientific socialism from the moment I was introduced to Marxism during a government class back in my high school years, 1968. 
I call Marxism the race to cure racism. I bear witness that there's one God, Jesus, who is the author and finisher of my faith, and that Mao tongue is his messenger for government. Fathers, help your children. And we don't reverse correct verdicts. I'm pro-choice, and I vote. And uh, I like to say women hold up half the sky. That's why I'm for the Equal Rights Amendment, E-R-A, yes. And this is the struggle, Lord. The struggle is to, to bring forth truth in a world where 1% is, is perpetuating its interest and uh, its interest and its ideology dominates society, and we need to, to break through with revolutionary theory and revolutionary movement. I thank you for allowing me to be on the show, Brother Africa. It's an honor, Brother Moses, and we thank you. Next, we bring in our Sister Eleanor. We'd like to welcome her to Africa on the Move. Sister Eleanor, welcome. Good evening, um, Brother Africa, to our audience and to the fellow panelists. Good evening, good evening, and this is uh, a wonderful weekend. It's the uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s birthday uh, was officially last yesterday and will be celebrated tomorrow. And uh, it's uh, uh, we, uh, you know, I really like to honor his monumental legacy uh, as a civil rights pioneer and. It made me reflect on what you often discuss on the Africa on the Move, and that is organizing and working together. And Dr. King definitely, he had the support of black women leaders like Ella Jo Butler, uh, his wife, Coretta Scott King. He also had the support of student leaders who coordinated their own protests at lunch counters across the uh, the the nation um, and to combat segregation, and he had <clears throat> the support of allies who uh, were focusing for many things, including federal offices to demand to, to demand economic justice and step up where uh, needed, and including the Voters' Rights Act of 1965 and many other great things. So uh, this is a wonderful weekend. I'm delighted that you would allow me to participate in this evening's uh, broadcast. And uh, thank you very much. And thank you, everyone, for your support. Sister Eleanor, you know that women hold up half the sky. And without women, where would we be? It's an honor to have you. All right, listen, audience, this is Africa on the Move. I'm your host, Brother Africa. Uh, we're going to take a revolutionary culture break, and when we come back, we would like for you to come and join us by dialing 323-679-0841, and we want you to share with us what's going on in your world and the community. We'll be right back. This is Africa on the Move.
harder in chains, living in pain. Today is the same, and nothing ever changes. Hung by a noose, can't tell the truth, filled with abuse, and everywhere there's danger. How long can this go on? When will the light I see? I know I must be strong to last through my journey. Yeah, last through my journey. When we must decide to get off the ride and stop going through these changes. We must prepare and learn how to care, for soon we'll be there while our lives won't be in danger. And when the light is clear, oh how beautiful I will be to know. That I've been here and made it through my journey, yeah, and made it through my journey, yeah, 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 made it through my journey, made it through my journey, Hellerino. A bloodline across the waters from Benin to Salvador Bahia. A scar across the face of the earth. Pellerino, the place they brought the Africans, the place where they tried to make them slaves. Pellerino, you can feel the whip, hear the cries, and see the blood in the red clay. The clay that holds the stones together is African. And each stone is a bone from a people called slaves. Pellerino was the place where death came to dwell. His neighbors did not complain, for he was a way out. From the cold, gray, cobblestone streets to the lifeless cathedrals, tall walls of demons called angels, haunted visions of white faces, crucifying Jesus again and again. But in the sacrifice of this blood, of this dance with death, comes life more rich, more pure, more alive, where death spent many lonely nights, pacing the floors of his funeral parlor, waiting for someone to die. Pellerino, a French word called the place of torture, became a place of strength, a place where faces of white saints became faces of black gods, where haunted visions and demons became healing visionaries and orishas from the motherland. And Jesus rejoined his kinfolk and was reborn and baptized in the sound of sensual skin, turned up to dance, to inspire a fire like the sun, pronouncing his presence. Pellerino was the tongue of the flame, licking the eyes of those who have tried to remain blind, shining a light on a spirit that would not be denied. No, the chains did not break the spirit, did not enslave the music of my soul, did not shackle the will of my freedom, did not tarnish the glow of my gold, 
and all the Palomino's in Africa, in Europe, in North and South America cannot destroy the majesty of my people, the love of my people, shining like the sun everywhere we go, everywhere we go. Light is clear. Oh, how beautiful I will be to know that I've been here and made it through my journey. Yeah, and made it through my journey. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. We don't know who set the world on fire, but we Africans have all good intentions of putting it out. We're going to eradicate all forms of oppression. And the way we're going to do it is through organization. We encourage all those who's listening to this particular radio program that if you love your people, if you love humanity, if you love Mother Africa, the best way you can serve it is to be organized. So join an organization that is fighting for the liberation and unification of your people. This is Africa on the move, and we're going to continue to move down the road of liberation as we bring in now our political panelists and analysts to talk about what's going on in our world and the community as well as we invite you to do the same. I call it 323-679-0841. I'm Brother Africa. We're in the seat tonight. We're going to find it and stand behind it. And we may not give you what you want, but we're going to do our best to try to give you what you need. Let's use information as a tool for liberation. Brother Haki, we come back to you. Share with our listening audience what's been going on in your world and the community. Brother Haki. Yeah, well, uh, you know, recently, Brother Africa, there was a, a uh, hearing on a judicial nominee for the U.S. Court of Appeals Sixth Circuit. Uh, now, the individual that was um, uh, promoted by uh, President Biden was an African by the name of Andre Mathis. Now, Andre Mathis, um, <clears throat> in the past, received, uh, 10 years ago, received three parking tickets. Now, upon, you know, examining, you know, the uh, uh, Andre Mathis, uh, there was a, a representative, a congresswoman by the name of Marsha Blackburn. Of course, she's a Republican out of out of Tennessee. She def- she 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 characterized him as having a rap sheet. Now, for anyone who understands law, and I'm assuming as a congresswoman, she understands some law. A rap sheet speaks to um, convictions, uh, crimes, and convictions. That's a rap sheet. Parking tickets are considered administrative. And so the mere fact that she can conflate parking tickets with, with criminal activity speaks volumes in terms of how she saw this particular nominee. So one of the things that came to mind, I, I often think that if you're going to try to ensure that this qualified African doesn't become, you know, on a, on a, a, a appeal court judge, certainly you could, you could discre- attempt to discredit him on the merits, you know, based upon what he does. But when you, when you, when you, arbitrarily create these false narratives, which has no basis in terms of reality, 
And there's something else that's responsible in terms of why you would make such false narratives in the first place. So it seems to me this question in terms of unconscious racism is very relevant in terms of, you know, Hermosha Blacksburn's uh, <clears throat> interpretation of this particular young man, you know, as somehow a criminal based upon some, some parking tickets. Now, ironically, one of the parking tickets he received was a parking ticket for going over speed limit about five miles. Now, normally in the context of speeding tickets, when you, when you go over five miles, most law enforcement won't even stop you because often the gauges are not correct. And so they give you, they give you five miles over the speed limit, you know, uh, bef- you know, you know, just as, as, as a, 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 a matter of, uh, a, a matter of jurisprudence and understanding that, you know, there is a very real possibility that your, your speedometer is not reading correctly. And so they're not likely to stop you for going five miles over the speed limit, but he was. And of course we all understand that we all have been victims of, you know, um, the overzealousness of cops who happen to see brown skin and just tend to turn aside a bishop on that skin color that equates uh, to criminality. So I think Andre Mathis was a victim in this regard. But more importantly, though, Brother Africa, when we talk about, you know, um, irony, uh, one of the things, a little over, less than a year ago, the same Marshall Blackburn, the same Republican out of Tennessee, uh, was stopped by the police for speeding in excess of 10 miles an hour. And uh, what she did was, when the cop stopped her, she proceeded to get out of her car, flash her congressional badge, and as a result of flashing her congressional badge, she didn't receive a ticket. So when you think about irony, and when you think about the fact that this woman has been able to crucify someone as a criminal based upon a parking ticket, but in her, but in, in her own case, uh, actually using her professional credentials to get out of paying uh, her her uh, uh, parking ticket or, or a speeding ticket speaks to the kind of um, incredible uh, hypocrisy that exists, um, you know, um, you know, in the world of politics. Particularly, when we talk about uh, politics that that uh, exists in the Washington D.C. So clearly, Brother Africa, this question in terms of unconscious, you know, uh, racism is something that, would, which is why. The struggle is so complex. One of the things when you, when you deal with people, you know, oftentimes this unconscious racism manifests itself in the kind of things people say or the kind of things that people do. And so getting at that unconscious racism is not a very easy thing to do, which is why it's so relevant, so important that you have organization institutions in terms of being able to do what you need to do in terms of powering your communities. Because this unconscious racism is very, very pervasive. It doesn't just, it doesn't exist in one place and not another. It exists across the board. In every state in the union, you will find unconscious racism. So clearly, Marshall Blackburn, Blackburn epitomizes this kind of unconscious racism, which, which seems to me should um, compel people to understand the necessity in terms of organization, particularly the African community, in terms of building, to do those kind of things that have to be done in terms of the longevity you know, you know, uh, you know, in this country. So clearly, Brother Africa, I thought that was extraordinary when I, when I think about the, the unconscious racism and the, the hypocrisy that is epitomized by Marsha Blackburn, is, which, which is so commonplace that I thought it was important that I at least uh, uh, raise, you know, some real concerns in terms of a penalty for this unconscious racism to rear its head in the context of American society. And I close with that. Thank you, Brother Afton. We now we'll move to Brother Afton. Uh, Anthony, what's going on in your world and the community? Okay, uh, let's see. Uh, 
a few things. Uh, the U.S. is um, is uh, threatening to uh, invade Ethiopia over uh, over its conflict with uh, Tigray, and uh, which has uh, which the U.S. has supported for several years, and. Uh, that uh that conflict is still ongoing. I did read that uh uh the Tigrinians are retreating uh to Tigray away from a lot of uh Ethiopia's uh boundaries. Uh and uh you know uh uh you know that is a that may be of significance in terms of alleviating, uh, alleviating further conflict in Africa and uh, intervention. Also, uh, Cuba uh, is uh, exporting its vaccines to other countries in the world. And uh, that is of significance because uh, Cuba is the only poor country uh, that I'm aware of that has developed its own vaccines uh, to deal with COVID-19 and is willing to share uh, not only the vaccines, but the technology used to develop it with other countries. And uh, so that may provide from hope, some hope, for other poor countries in the world, such as uh, Central and South America and Africa. Thank you, Brother Anthony. We now will go to Brother Moses. Brother Moses, what's going on in your world in the community? Um, let's see. This is the celebration of Dr. Martin Luther King's birthday, uh, and um I was I would like to show up uh, a side of his his political agenda which was not um articulated as thoroughly as it should have been. Which side are you on? Jesus said in Luke sixteen sixteen that the law and the prophets were until John the Baptist. Since since then the kingdom of heaven is preached. Jesus also prayed that God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Yet many preachers today, unlike Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., are telling people to accept conditions as they are, ignore the world, and just keep coming to church and paying your tithes because Jesus will solve all the world's injustices when he returns. However, the Palestinian people need your help. Your tax dollars are paying to maintain the racist apartheid government of Israel. The U.S. government props up Israel with billions of dollars each year. Zionism is racism. The belief in government of Jews by Jews and for only Jews is Zionism. Well over 2,000 years ago, there was a Jewish kingdom. But when Jesus was born, the Jews were no longer a nation state. Some wanted to return to the good old days. But Jesus said his kingdom was not of this world. He was a revolutionary and an internationalist because he was for all people, not just Jews. In 1948, Palestine was occupied by a well-armed group of Jews who killed and maimed to establish Israel, and that government continues to kill and displace 
the Palestinian people from their homeland. These Jews are not Christian and don't claim to be Christians, yet it's primarily the Christian community that supports them. Either you're a part of the solution or you're a part of the problem. Get involved. The people of Palestine and the freedom-loving people around the world will not rest until Palestine is free. And it's important to understand the direction of world history and be on the right side of history. And I think Dr. Martin Luther King would have been, in, uh, as Bishop Tutu and other other outstanding leaders, would have saw through the Israeli uh, propaganda and saw that this was imperialism and, and stood beside the Palestinian people for justice and truth. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Moses. And we go from Brother Moses to Sister Eleanor. What's going on in your world, the community? Sister Eleanor. Well, uh, Brother Africa, as uh, <clears throat> Brother Moses mentioned, is the celebration of Dr. King's uh, holiday. And again, I can't tell you, you know, how team worked to build coalitions with um, Joe Butler, with the students uh, movement of the time, and with other persons that were visiting Washington seeking justice for voters and all types of social justice. So he was a coalition builder. But more importantly, Brother Africa, my attention must turn back to the virus, this world pandemic. You know, we saw that at one point, 70% of the population in Europe was vaccinated, but it didn't stop the variant from uh, moving to Europe from South Africa, nor has it stopped it from the United States. In the last week in uh, the D.C. metropolitan area alone, we've seen transportation shortages, uh, a reduction to Sunday schedules with for some communities, that meaning no bus transportation at all because of outages due to vaccine in infections. We saw the Supreme Court take action to um, mandate that medical workers had to be ma- uh, vaccinated while they let the uh, other capitalist corporations uh, uh Uh, get a pass on that and make a personal decision. So we see the confusion. And as Brother Haiki discussed, inflation and the combating fascism, and we saw uh, Donald Trump have his first 22-22 rally in Arizona this past weekend. So uh, more than ever, we need to stand up. And we saw uh, a Democratic senator stand up to oppose breaking up the filibuster so that we could pass the John Lewis and the two voting acts that would reinstate uh, voters' rights that have been annihilated by 39 states. So right now it's time for uh, uh, folks to act or, or, or their failure to act will surely result in uh, fascist, uh, backwards people moving forward, um, such as the uh, representative from Colorado who is extremely backwards and uninformed, as well as uh, Taylor Green in Georgia. And we see this uh, very backwards movement. We see QAnon, a, a, a cult, having a political place in the 
Republican Party. We see the Oath Keepers, O-A-T-H Keepers, um, seeming to have protection not only in their individual states and in the District of Columbia, but all the way up through government. So it's time to really change. It's time to make this vaccine available to any the Moderna and Pfizer vaccine proprietary knowledge available to any nation and producer of vaccines on planet Earth to protect us all. We are now on our fourth variant. People are dying, and this time they claim it's not as bad, but it's worse because when you have more people infected and you have more outages of medical workers, you have less people to care for people. We have the uh, poor, we have minorities, the black and brown, we have the red man and others going without treatment, without proper care. We, we're, we're seeing sex, we, we, we see in that we do not see or feel their presence, and we know we are here as African people, as brown people, as red people, as yellow people, we're here. And uh, we are somewhat invisible right now. So we need to make sure that everyone who chooses to have a vaccine has that opportunity uh, globally in Central America, in South America, and in Africa and Asia. And it's, it's urgent, Brother Africa. It, it really is urgent. In order to save anyone, we have to save everyone. And uh, I just urge people to try to become vaccinated because it may not affect you adversely, but it could be that very elder standing next to you that you could have such a horrible impact on their life. And um, I just thank you for this evening and uh, thank you for allowing me to participate and this evening's forum, I am doing so from Georgetown University Hospital in Washington, D.C. And uh, I uh, have faith in God and my community that I will become well and return home safely. Thank you, Brother Africa. Thank you, Sister Eleanor. I would like to just respond to one thing you did say. Sister Eleanor and the panelists can maybe correct me. Uh, it was my understanding of uh, the recent Supreme Court decision on OSHA not having the right to impose their will on individuals as employees of companies with a hundred more people to um, take a vaccination shot. They 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 ruled that um, that was outside of their you know constitutional means and what have you. And, um, That's correct. And um, you know, and you know, I don't know how how people feel about it, but I think fundamentally for me, um, I don't have no problem with with that decision. I think we're going down a slippery slope when we begin to give these institutions, government, more powers to make decisions on what can and can't go into our body, what have you. And one thing is seen sort of clear. Today, when you look at the reporting that are going on concerning this coronavirus, is that even if you get the shots, you still catch the stuff, 
And even if you don't get it, you catch it. So something ain't, ain't seen, seen right with, with, with that picture. And there is a history of how viruses have been used against certain groupings of people that people cannot, um, you know, omit from their, from, from their experiences. So anyway, um, I would just like to just, you know, we emphasize that people should um, think about it carefully and understand the long-term dynamics of um, what is taking place right now. Because for me, I think it's more to the game than what they're telling me. So anyway, panelists, I'd like to thank you all in terms of giving me all perspectives of what's going on in your world community. I have a couple of issues or questions I'd like to get you all response to. And earlier, one talk about... Um, the anniversary of Martin Luther King's uh, birthday, which was January the 15th. Uh, he was born in 1929. And um, given the fact that if we look at the legacy of Dr. King, uh, what would y'all say was some of the things that we should have learned from his legacy? I know there has been a narrative on King. And this narrative has often come from outside of our community and our people. So I'd like to hear your narrative. When we look at King Legacy, what should it have been, what it should have been, and what we should have gotten from it? Start out with you first, Brother Haki. Well, I, I tell you, I, I think the, the thing that um, I'm particularly impressed by is his level of evolution. Uh, one of the things that you know, popular media often characterize him as somewhat of a dreamer. But the bottom line is, but if you look at the history of Martin Luther King, he actually involved in terms of his views. And certainly his, the evolution of his views are no small positive as a result of different organizations, you know, you know, acting collectively to bring about a higher consciousness, you know, in society. By virtue of bringing a higher consciousness into, in, in, into society, uh, Dr. King's words has more relevance. So I think Dr. King recognized, you know, it took, you know, uh, the masses of people um, gravitating toward his message. He also understood that what other people had to say had some relevance, and he wasn't afraid to listen to that. And so, <clears throat> and so from a and so from a technical point of view, I think there's much confusion <clears throat> because uh, on one of the things, you know, people often, you know, um, you know, uh, castigate. Uh, Reverend King, because the position is that, you know, he wasn't strong on his critique in terms of capitalism. Dr. King did what he had to do in terms of trying to trying to 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 organize the masses of people, as such that he was very, very circumspect in terms of the kind of words they use um, uh, in terms of trying to reach people. One of the things which is ironic, but I think is very real, and we have to we have to confront that, is that one of the things when you try to get people to understand what's going on in the world, particularly try to get them to move forward. One of the things that when you talk about conditioning in a society where we're conditioned to believe certain things irrespective of the reality, certain words doesn't resonate well with people. One of those words happens to be capitalism. Anytime you employ the word capitalism, you automatically turn people off because they're convinced that capitalism is the greatest system in the world. After all, they're told ad nauseum, you know, every day, 365 days a year, that capitalism is the greatest system in the world. And so, therefore, they really believe that. And so, therefore, given that, given that reality, Dr. King, in terms of his phrasing, had to be very, 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 very tactful in terms of how you go about getting people to understand the uh, inequalities, the injustices of the society, without necessarily using that word capitalism. 
So when Dr. King talk about racism, when he talk about uh, militarism, when he talk about uh, materialism, in essence, he was talking about capitalism. But this was much more palatable to the masses of the people. They could support that idea because he didn't use the word capitalism. So, so Dr. King was a much deeper thinker than people give him credit for. And this notion that somehow he was a dreamer, I think, has to be dispelled. And, in fact, when you look at the philosophy of Dr. King in terms of the, word, the, philosophy, the words that he made famous, when you look at those, that philosophy, it's very, very clear. You can see the evolution in terms of, you know, his beliefs. So clearly Dr. Dr. King wasn't a dreamer. He actually understood the reality in terms of uh, the injustices confronting the people, and he understood clearly the role capitalism played in terms of fomenting all these injustices that existed in society. So Dr. King, by no stretch of imagination, was simply a dreamer. Brother Anthony? Yes, I concur with all the points uh, Hockey made, and I would add, that the, uh, one of the most important lessons Dr. King left us with was how to face our enemy without fear. And this is critical because uh, with, uh, not knowing how to face your enemy without fear uh, is important in terms of being able to take the risks and sacrifices necessary to achieve mm-hmm. our freedom. And uh he uh and uh if you uh pay close attention uh to his uh, speeches at he made over the years of his uh of his life you could see he uh evolved because he worked among the struggling masses of the people. That's why his thought evolved. And you can see that in his speeches, uh, particularly the speeches he made after the March on Washington, where he intensified his work with uh, organizations such as SNCC, uh, and, uh, you know, and uh, labor movements uh, throughout the U.S. You can see his devolution and his thought. Okay, Brother Moses. Yeah, Dr. King, you know, is one in a kind, one in a billion. There, there's um, sometimes there comes along people who can sum up the situation that they are faced with and, um, uh, and put a positive, positive vision onto the situation because without a, without a vision, the Bible says the people perish. And um, as Lennon said, without revolutionary theory, there can be no revolutionary movement. And so theory itself is dream, whatever, is vision, is a guide to action. You know, it's, it's not so much that um, that um, you understand the world, but it's more that you change the world and that and um, you know, without a without some kind of vision, you know, people get lost. And so, uh, he was able to lay out a clear, a clear uh, a line against racism and bigotry, and uh, and um, a lot of people identified with that. And um, I don't know, like I said, Dr. King was one in a billion, uh, um, and um, he will be missed, and he is missed. Thank you. 
Thank you, Brother Moses. Sister Eleanor. Yes, as um, as um, all of the panelists have discussed, is his speeches as well as his coalition building, working with the students' movement, working with labor and so many other groups, and uh, is def- definitely a model for us uh, and and the leaders of the world today. To emulate moving forward, and uh, it's a it's a, a wonderful time. Every year, his life still has such an impact on all of us, in that that's the only time of year, or one of few times of the year, when people recommend that we do and organize activities where we work for the community good. Is around the Dr. King holiday, so. Uh, he definitely uh, was uh, a leader amongst leaders. He moved far beyond the civil rights movement, and we saw in his lifetime when he began to realize the atrocities of war and the Vietnam War, and uh, he was growing and learning from the people that he worked with as they did from him. So we see the importance of uh, of recognizing uh, and working with colleagues and, and, and how it contributes to the development of uh, our leadership. Yeah, and uh, I can't say more than any of the other panelists have said other than they're on point, and thank you. Thank you, Sister Eleanor. And the last point I'd like to get Y'all response to um, dealing with uh, the issue of the upcoming so-called presidential election in about two more years in 24. I'm just curious in terms of um, the many forms of disrespect that the Democratic Party uh, openly display display towards African people. Now there is some discussion within the Democratic Party that. In order for Biden to win the election, you may have to get rid of Pamela Harris. They see her as a liability. Not only as a liability, to talk about replacing her, maybe with, I believe, Elizabeth Doe's daughter as a vice, as his vice um, president for the election 2024. What do y'all make of that, that uh, just the whole idea of that, that discussion? Brother Haki. Well, Brother Africa, if if you if you are searching for loyalty, Brother Africa, you will necessarily find it in the form of political circles. They're not it's not based upon loyalties. This is based upon expediency. Uh you do what you got to do in terms of maintaining power and you know, or status. So in that regard, when you talk about fundamentally dismissing the aspirations of um, you know, African people uh, whether we believe it or not, Kamala Harris figures prominently in terms of that calculation. So, as a woman of color, you know uh, there are certain there are certain stereotypes in terms of affiliated with her, regardless of her accomplishments academically. So, one of the things I talked about earlier when I talked about unconscious racism, one of the things that we 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 have to understand that your education, uh, your experience, the kind of job you have, how big your house is, uh, what kind of car you drive, none of that stuff is really relevant in terms of 
unconscious unconscious racism. Uh, you're seen as a group, and in in response to you, based upon your skin color, it has a particular it has a particular inflection uh, in terms of characterizing who you are as a human being. So let us be confused. So if they replace Kamala Harris, you know, I wouldn't be surprised at all. In fact, one of the things that you know, if you know, the one of the things if the Democrats were sincere in terms of you know, you know, uh, forming those kind of policies that was in the interest of humanity or the interest of the masses of people in the society, then then Kamala Harris' uh, appointment, you know, as vice president would be irrelevant. It really wouldn't matter. But because they're not in it in terms of formatting what is in the best interest of humanity or the best interest of poor people, then Kamala Harris, Kamala Harris is simply a, 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 a smokescreen. So you give it to her and make, give the perception that you're actually trying to do something to improve the situation. When in reality, what you're doing is just maintaining the status quo. So, so this question in terms of loyalty, Brother Africa, if, if I'm hearing you correctly, has no relevance. So everything they do, not only because of the experiences, but they also they do it. You know, because, you know, uh, bottom, the bottom line is that when, when Malcolm talk about Democrat and Republican being two sides of the same coin, he's absolutely correct. And so, therefore, in that regard, in terms of fundamentally being against any kind of change, the Democrats are just as guilty as the Republican Party in terms of resisting change. So, Brother Africa, uh, I, you know, I, I think that, you know, if they did that to Kamala Harris, I wouldn't be surprised at all. As a matter of fact, uh, given the, the press that she's been receiving, uh, the ruling class has been ruthless in terms of their um, disinformation campaign against her. I wouldn't be surprised at all if she was replaced. But, of course, it's not going to stop the Democratic Party from losing because if the power structure has already decided. You know, now is the time to implement uh, a full-scale um, uh, attack, you know, on the Constitution, a full-scale uh, attack on all that's decent and wholesome in the, in, in, in the name of, you know, securing absolute power. So clearly, you know, Getting rid of Kamala Harris is part of that process in terms of achieving what they want the most, which is, you know, power on a grand scale. Brother Anthony, we didn't play the game where other people didn't play. They asked us to help get them in, and then they use us when it's time to get us out, and we get nothing for our vote. So why do we continue to vote? So your take on this, Brother Anthony. Uh, yes. Um, I think uh, the the re, uh, the reason why we fall victim to these charades again and again is because we're not organized as a people. We're disorganized. The Democratic Party knows this, and uh, they take full advantage of it. And uh, uh, they uh, they use they use our votes to get uh, to get political power, and uh, once they uh, they have to see the power, uh, they uh, they uh, they thoroughly disrespect us because we're not organized. We don't have our agenda. Uh, you know, in place. And uh, that's why we're disrespected by by both sides of the, the, of the duopoly. And uh, we've been trying the same tact 
those of us who are able to vote, that is, for nearly 120 years. It hasn't worked. And uh, it is time for us to get about the very hard work of forming our own independent political organizations uh, in order to uh, seize power over our lives. But until we're, but as long as we're dependent upon our enemies for reform, we won't get anywhere. Thank you, Brother Anthony. Brother Moses, talk to me. Hello, hello, hello. First of all, like I like to say, you know, we we um, haven't all been voting. You know, that's 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 a myth. I mean, I mean, some people have been voting, but we haven't all been voting, and uh, so and um, that's why they and they want to make sure that we don't vote is is what they what they the the scheme of things in terms of democratic um, in terms of democratic revolutionary electoral politics. Uh, um, we're in motion, and uh, and right now, you know, if, if we're going to talk about serious uprising, serious revolution, then we definitely got to be talking about organization, and definitely got to be talking about millions and millions of people, and uh, and I, uh, you know, and uh, and so being a Marxist Leninist. Meaning that concrete analysis of concrete conditions being the life and soul of Marxism, as Lenin said, you have to analyze the concrete situation you're in, and and deal with the concrete problems you're faced with, and, uh, and have a correct position on on the ideological and political issue at hand. And uh, at hand now is this voting thing. Uh, um, Obviously, a lot of people don't want to vote. A lot of people haven't been able to vote who do want to vote. And uh, I think the people who do, who do want to vote should be able to vote. And we should, I, I, I would be uh, derelict of duty if I didn't support the, the right to vote. And so, because uh, that's basic Democrat democracy uh, uh, in terms of, you know, True democracy in terms of uh, uh, the majority rule, uh, but you know, right now we have so many obstacles to voting. Um, the, who was it said that when you make uh, um, uh, nonviolent revolutions impossible, you know, you you don't have enough, no alternative but to have a, a violent revolution. Yeah. Um, Anyway, I'm going to leave it right there. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Moses. We're going to Sister Eleanor. Your thoughts? Yeah, um, Brother Africa, right now, um, in terms of voting, Brother Moses said something really important, and that is there is a myth that we as African people are uh, great participators in, uh, in voting. And that's not true. 
Uh, many of us are unable to vote because of our criminal records. Um, and now we have 39 states who aggressively have passed voter registration laws that will restrict uh, individuals' rights to vote. We've seen them shut down polling stations in black communities. We've seen uh, these uh, Jim Crow ID requirements. And when we hear uh, Donald Trump, former President Donald Trump, discuss uh, the uh, stealing of, uh, of, of, of the election, he brings up um, Atlanta, Detroit, Pennsylvania, and it's almost as if it's code words for uh, black people. So he clearly wants to restrict our, our ability to vote. And, uh, and right now, in order, when we talk about revolution, Brother Africa, as Brother Moses said, we need millions and millions of people to become aware of the fact of who they are that no matter what, what their income, if they go to a job that they're workers, and to realize that they are not a part of the 1% and that it's important for Mother Earth, for the workers, for everyone and everything that the means of production belong to the people. There's no reason for Amazon workers not to be earning six and seven figure salaries. So right now I see uh, we saw uh, uh, President Biden in Atlanta, and what was he discussing? Uh, the Senate's uh, filibuster rules. And this is something that should have been addressed a year ago. But the issues at hand are voters' rights, uh, uh climate change, inflation, the infrastructure, and our, quote, competition with China. But that's soon going to be on the back burner because Russia clearly doesn't want the Ukraine to enter NATO, and the world is so much more complex, and politics are so much more complex, and uh, it's far, it goes far beyond U.S. capitalism because now U.S. capitalism has so many international players with so many with enterprise zones and in the nation's capital in the District of Columbia, you know people are paying their rents to people owners in Amsterdam now and in other countries. So we see a, a, a extreme uh, a hostile climate developing in the United States for workers. And uh, the EU and its 27 nations, they're going to have their rich folks paying taxes. There's no more free rides for the rich, or they're going to limit the rides for the rich. So more and more groups are setting up their home bases here to avoid nation uh, abroad. So we right now have to stand up more than ever and organize uh, and fight back uh, these uh, 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 restrictive policies, legislative policies that have gone into effect in over half of this country. Um, there's no way the Democrats can uh, win an election 
if the people that they count on, whether wrongfully or rightfully, cannot vote or have uh, their voters' rights restricted. But the issue isn't what party you vote for. The issue is just simply having that right to vote. And I uh, definitely don't think it's the end all uh, to civil rights and to uh, liberation for for working class people, but it's definitely something that we cannot ignore and cannot afford to lose. And uh, how we go about affecting uh, reinstating those rights is is uh, is very complex because the the filibuster is not seeming to go anywhere. We had uh, a Democratic uh, senator, and I can't think of her name right now, say point blank that she was not going to vote to eliminate the filibuster. And uh, so we, we are, we're in a, a, a political turmoil, to say the least. Oh, she to me, she got to as a form of misdirection. But anyway, we don't have to thank everybody for getting that perspective what on did you what's going on now. I said, well, uh, uh, I'm I'm sorry, this, whole voting, this whole voting issue and phenomenon, looking at in history, all seem like a form of misdirection when it comes to our people. We're not um, telling us down the path for getting our, our total liberation, unification as a people. No, really, not necessarily for Africa, because what you're talking about, one of the fundamental issues that you, you first and foremost have to um, look at is the essence of the nature of the creation of, of, this, uh, of the foundation of this country. It was founded upon unjust uh, principles and values. And if we're founded upon these unjust principles and values, and actually founded on the basis of uh, theft and oppression, it will not allow you a equation to bring about fairness and justice and freedom. And we're not talking about eradicating the whole foundation of the essence of what this system is based upon. You know, the, the tactics and these little maneuvers that they allow us to participate in are all forms of delusion. That's just my take on it. And I think that if you look at history and understand it at some point, hopefully collectively as a people, who live in this in, in this particular territory, in this hemisphere, we come with the same understanding. But like always, we know that through struggle, all things are possible. But that was just 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 my take on it. And this is one of the things we want to do as oppressed people is point for have forums where we have discussions and battles over ideals. And through this whole process, we want to come up with a um, a manner of a unity, uh, a unity of thought, so that actions can be unified. So anyway, panelists, we thank you for your presentation on what's going on in your world community. What we'd like to do right now is make our transition to today's program theme, which is a reflection on events of the past year, 2001. We're going to discuss some of the things we have discussed previously on this program as well as, you know, maybe some of the most important events that took place this past year from your perspective. So what we're going to do is we're going to have a station break of music, music of um, music of, of consciousness, followed by 
the first area of discussion is we're going to talk about this question of the race for Africa. You know, in 1884-85, that was the Berlin Conference where the European forces came together collectively to try to decide how they would deal with Africa, the African people. There seemed to be a, 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 a redoing, a reoccurrency of this same phenomenon. We want you to listen to this piece on a race for Africa, and we'd like for you to reflect on this particular issue and hopefully get up the things of value of why it's important for us not only to connect with Africa, but to clearly understand it and understand the role that it can play and must play if we're talking about, if we're talking about getting out of our pressure, no matter where we are on this planet. So right now, we'll be right back. This is Africa on the move. Brother, brother, there's far too many of you dying. You know we've got to find a way to bring some loving here today. Father, father, we don't need to escalate. You see, war is not the end. For only love can conquer hate. You know we've got to find a way to bring some love and kiss here today. Pick it light and pick it fast. Don't punish me with brutality. Talk to me so you can see. Today we'll talk about Africa, 
once seen by Europe as the antithesis of civilization, the heart of darkness in the words of a certain Joseph Conrad. Centuries later, Africa remains ignored. It makes news for its conflicts, poverty and exoticism. For the longest time, the world saw it as a lost cause. Then one country saw opportunity and thus began a new race for Africa, not very different from the scramble of the 19th century when colonial Britain and France wanted raw materials, slaves and geopolitical influence. Now in the 21st century, global powers are in more or less the same race. China, the United States, India, the European Union, Japan, Israel, Canada, all of these countries are in the race for Africa. And one country is emerging as the clear winner. Hello and welcome to Gravitas Plus. I'm Palki Sharma Upadhyay and this is Africa, a continent of 54 sovereign states, 17% of the world's population, 9.6% of the global oil output, 90% of the world's platinum supply, 90% of the world's cobalt supply, half of the world's gold supply, two-thirds of the world's manganese, 35% of the world's uranium, 75% of the world's coltan, and 54 votes in the United Nations General Assembly. This is what makes Africa so attractive and makes the continent a battleground for global powers. There are numerous fronts investment and infrastructure, military power, diplomacy, soft power, trade, geopolitics, every country has its own interest in Africa. In 2016, Israel began its scramble for the continent. Benjamin Netanyahu became the first Israeli Prime Minister to visit Africa in 50 years. What did he want? Votes. In favor of Israel and against Palestine in the United Nations resolutions. Africa and Israel share similar histories, he said. Israel went on to sponsor solar, water and agricultural technologies. In the same year, 2016, Senegal co-sponsored a UN resolution. It condemned the construction of illegal Jewish settlements in the West Bank. What did Israel do? It cancelled the Mashav drip irrigation project. And this is just one example. Here's another one. The European Union has pledged more than $54 billion in sustainable investment for Africa. What does the EU want? access to the African market of 1.3 billion people. Brussels has negotiated free trade agreements with at least 40 African countries. But does this ensure a balanced two-way trade? It doesn't. And no country has a bigger interest in Africa than China. China is funding one in five infrastructure projects in Africa. It is building every third one. Africa has an infrastructure deficit and China has a signed checkbook. Starting 2005, China has invested at least $2 trillion in Africa. It built 6,200 kilometers of railways, including the continent's longest railway line connecting Ethiopia and Djibouti. Beijing has also built the African Union headquarters in Addis Ababa. What does China get in return? A lot. Geopolitical influence to start with. Beijing is selling its culture, its currency. In Guinea-Bissau, exit signs are written in Mandarin. China has established at least 50 Confucius Institutes across 33 countries. Several African countries use Chinese currency. China also gets a strategic overseas base. In 2017, China built its first overseas base at the Horn of Africa, Djibouti to be specific. Djibouti connects the Mediterranean Sea to the Indian Ocean via the Suez Canal. The base has the capacity to accommodate 10,000 troops. China also gets a market to dump its goods. China is Africa's largest trading partner. Chinese trade has increased 
40-fold in the last two decades. At least 10,000 Chinese firms operate in Africa. This is according to a McKinsey study. Africa has resources and China has access. Did you know that a third of China's investments in Africa are in the mining sector? And finally, it gets to debt trap Africa. But here's the thing. China is not the only country investing in this continent. It's not even the biggest. The United States is Africa's largest investor. It accounts for $54 billion of FDI stock. There are 600 American companies operating in South Africa alone. And this even after the U.S. president called Africa this. For the longest time, Africa was nothing but a war zone for Washington. It has over 7,000 troops deployed in the continent. They are spread across some 13 African countries including Burkina Faso, Cameroon, Central African Republic, Chad, Democratic Republic of Congo, Kenya, Libya, Mali, Mauritania, Niger, South Sudan, Somalia and Tunisia. For the US, Africa was a continent for counter-terrorism operations. What happened then? Why is the US suddenly interested in Africa? The answer is this. For the US, Africa is now a new front to take on China and Washington is now fighting it out for power and influence. An article on the US State Department website reads, and I quote, Africa is the continent of the future, thus we need to make the most of its potential. By 2050, its population will more than double to 2.2 billion people with over 60% under the age of 25. Where is Africa's interest in all of this? Also, what about India? What role does India play in this continent? New Delhi's ties with Africa date back to the time of Mahatma Gandhi. India was part of the Bandung project of 1955. New Delhi supported Africa's anti-colonial struggles. It supported the liberalization movements in Ghana, Algeria, Tunisia, Morocco, Angola, Mozambique, Guinea-Bissau. India also raised the issue of racism in South Africa. It will be unfair to say, though, that India's newfound interest in Africa has nothing to do with China. In 2018, Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi toured key African states just ahead of Chinese President Xi Jinping's visit. In 2018, India decided to open 18 new embassies in Africa. India has defense partnerships with Zambia, Nigeria, Ghana, Ethiopia, Botswana, Uganda, Mozambique and Namibia. New Delhi is currently training African military. Indian company Airtel is a dominant telecom firm in Africa. New Delhi is offering 50,000 scholarships to African students. Despite everything, India is far behind China in the race for Africa. China's Belt and Road Initiative has sealed its hold on Africa. If in the 1900s Africa was colonized with force, in 2020, it is being trapped by loans. China accounts for 14% of sub-Saharan debt. In Kenya, the volume of Chinese loans is six times that of France, which is the country's second largest creditor. And Sri Lanka can tell you what happens when Chinese loans are not repaid. China is looking to capture Africa. It has a strong diaspora. It is spending big money. It is selling its movies, culture and currency. China extracts raw materials. It manufactures products with them and sells them back to this continent. Does this remind you of something? What did the British do in India? In the 19th century, the rivalry between Britain and France fueled Africa's colonization. In the 21st century, the trade war between the United States and China is hastening the same. Just like the 19th century, there are numerous countries in the scramble for Africa. And just like the 19th century, there is nothing in it for Africa. Gravitas Plus. Co-presented by Skoda. Simply clever. Today we'll talk about Africa. We welcome you back. Africa on the move. We will make our transition now to discuss our theme, a reflection of events 
for the past year, 2021. We just recently listened to a footage on the Race for Africa. You can find that footage on YouTube. And it raises many important issues and questions as it relates to the relevance of Africa, not only to African people, but to the world. And what we want to do right now, bringing our political panelists and as well as you, to, to respond to what you have just heard in terms of the issues that are confronting Africa today. And we would say that what you have just heard or the presentation that you have just listened to, um, you know, you may have a different narrative spin on it, and we're welcome to hear your point of view as well. So if you'd like to do this, we actually call 323-679-0841, hit 1, and we will acknowledge your last four numbers. But the high key becomes very important, again, for us not only to connect with Africa, but understand the importance of Africa to our future and survival. When you heard this piece and understand the history of how Africa has always been looked at as something that's been very essential, where other people want to have a piece of it, a means of controlling it, and looking at what's going on today on Africa, what do you say based upon listening to the particular piece, Brother Haki? Yeah, well, I think that, um, you know, I, I think that the, the narrative that the sister uh, raises is, is a very, uh, very important narrative. Uh, you know, historically, when we talk about military intervention in, in Africa and for the sole purpose in terms of colonization and stealing resources of Africa, now it's a different strategy. And, and, and But unfortunately, the strategy is not being simply employed by Western states, but it's being employed by non-Western states for the express purpose in terms of the control of Africa. Now, some may hesitate to call it colonization, but that's precisely what it is. Because one of the things is that when you have a situation where if Africa doesn't have funds in terms of in terms of paying for services provided by foreign nations, the foreign nations reserve, result to actually taking resources out of Africa, raw materials out of Africa, as in terms to replace uh, uh, to replace um, uh, any currency that Africa doesn't have in terms of to, to repay. Then it seems to me, you know, that essentially what you talk about is colonization. But you don't think about Africa, I think we'd be remiss not to say that when we talk about this whole pursuit of colonization by, by nations around the world, that we have to at some point begin to to, to, to point fingers at terms of African leadership in terms of willingness to engage in those policies, uh, you know, uh, um, those, those uh, economic agreements, which tends to not only undermine Africa's development, but to ensure that Africa remain impoverished well into the future. So it seems so. So it seems to me, you know, um, you know, um, where it sounds good in terms of you know having these relationships with these nations, particularly in lieu of the fact when you think about the kind of ill treatment that's historically been passed down uh, by the West when it comes to its interactions with Africa, then certainly you can understand why Africa would be hesitant or would certainly take a different direction in terms of maybe doing something different in terms of economic relationship with other nations who at least perceived to be in their, in their interest. But the one thing we got to understand, that when we talk about business principles, one thing we got to understand, that they're all in it for profits. It's all about the bottom line. So it doesn't matter whether you come from the East or from the West. It's all about the bottom line. It's all about profitability. Now, if they can exploit Africa, regardless of whether they come from the East or West, for 
purposes of profitability, then that's precisely what they do. It's incumbent upon African leadership to understand the nature of the beast. And because Africa has such abundance in terms of world resources, Africa is in the driver's seat in terms of actually being able to control those resources, to be actually able to set the prices for those resources. The only thing that's holding Africa back is you don't have the organization. You know, you need a unified Africa. When Gaddafi tried to finance Africa by creating the United Central Bank of Africa, he was on the right track. But unfortunately, the kind of corruption, the kind of um, the kind of opportunism that exists among too many damn African leaders uh, made it possible uh, for that for that for that endeavor to be destroyed. So it seems to me, brother Africa, that's, there is there is no secret in terms of this kind of push for colonialism in Africa, and you know. And when you talk about the West specifically, when you think about in terms of the intervention, intervention of, of, of troops, you know, into the African continent, you got to think about the repercussions of that. And when we think historically, we think in terms of the U.S. in particular, and the Western nations' preoccupation with the, with the Middle East or Western Asia, uh, more precisely, when we think of their preoccupation with Western Asia, uh, you know, that's that's well understood. But now having lost in Afghanistan, now they're setting their directions, they're setting their sights on Africa. So now they're in their actual military formations of uh, uh, they've, they've been there for a long, long time. But increasingly, more and more are going there, you know, from the U.S. specifically to set up in terms of you know all kinds of um, military centers, all kinds of forts, all these kind of things. But the sole purpose, you know, are not only countering China's influence in Africa, but to make sure that into the future. They will be there to actually, to some extent, control African politics, and you know. So it, it seems to me, you know, without some without some analysis in terms of African leaders, in terms of what's going on, you know, if if African leaders don't come to grip with the kind of corruption and the self-interest, the narrow self-interest, then I, you know, the bottom line is that Africa is going to be in, in, in a sad state of affairs for a long, 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 long time to come. So I think that she's absolutely correct. So we can't discount the fact that, you know, that uh, the kind of uh, the enslavement being imposed by Africa now is not necessarily military. Now it's more economics. And so it, so it seems to me that, you know, Africa have to be, African leaders have to be very, 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 very uh, tactical, very, very strategic in terms of how they go about doing business with nations around the world because none of them are doing this because of the interests of Africa. They're doing it in for self-interest. Doesn't make it necessarily wrong, but it simply means that this historical pattern of using Africa to benefit others is ongoing. So it's up to African leaders to to fundamentally step in and say enough is enough, and we're going to change that paradigm. But we'll we'll see what happens. Thank you, brother Haki, brother Afton. When we listened to that piece, the race for Africa, one of the things that came to my mind is the issue of the importance of political unity. Political unity as relates to the importance of the unification of Africa as a one entity. We have different countries all divided, think differently, have different um, political policies. They have different political, military, economic relationships with different countries. As Nkrumah and Secretary often stated that they will pick us all one by one. And that's what seems to be happening now. My question to you is, is it more important right now for us to fight for political unity first before we try to unify and fight for this economic unity as a continent? What is your take on that, Brother Anthony? Uh, Certainly. It is happening now. 
they are picking that uh, they are picking off African countries one by one. Uh, the destabilization going on in Mali is a case in point. And uh, and uh, let's see, and uh, the invasion of Libya intensified things, and the toppling of uh, Libya's government, uh, and uh, not one African country, to my knowledge, rose up to defend uh, Libya against that invasion. And, uh, you know, and uh, we see the ramifications of it to this day. And uh, one of the ramifications is that uh, Africa is more unstable than it, uh, than it had been since the uh, decade of the independence of African countries, the 1960s. And... Uh, uh, I think uh, political unification is crucial uh, because without political unification, any other unification is not possible, including military and economic uni- unification. And uh, and in order for Africa to get control of its own affairs. It has to speak with one voice, not 54, as is the present makeup. And uh, and uh, Africa's, uh, you know, uh, the forces of imperialism and uh, and uh, very subtle forces are taking advantage of uh, uh, of the divisions in Africa. To seek to pursue their own interests, which in and of itself isn't bad, but uh, but uh, uh, it uh, it doesn't sp- uh, bode well for Africa's own interests. And uh, one of uh, the mis- the mistakes that African leadership has continued to make over the decades since Africa got sham independence. It's its reliance upon the forces of imperialism, and that is why uh, Africa is under neo-colonial domination. When a lot of these countries became independent, there were not sufficient quantity of cadre to educate the African youth, and that is why there's so many African youth. That aspire that aspire to leave Africa, rather than uh, you know uh, stay in Africa uh, to see its development through. And uh, as Kwame Ture pointed out, Pan Africanism cannot be built from the top down; it has to be built from the bottom up. So we have to intensify the organization of our people in order to ensure that African resources are used for African interests primarily. Brother Moses, talk to us, Brother Moses. Why should we be concerned about 
what's taking place in Africa as relates to our realities here in, here in the States? Well, we have Africa, the motherland, you know, Africa where it all started, Africa, you know, must be free. Uh, if we're going to all be free, uh, the roots, roots rock reggae or roots, roots definitely rock into Africa. And, um, and uh, I think, you know, what did it say? She said, I think it was like 17% of the world's population, did she say? Yeah. Did anybody hear that? That's what she said. I, I always thought it was more uh, uh, Africa. Uh, Africa is the motherland, the motherland, and you know, uh, uh, ultimately, I, I've chosen the fatherland, and uh, and uh, but I but I was. Recognize the situation. I think for what it is, and uh, and uh, study history, study world history, study uh, the issues that the people are dealing with. I'm 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 not up to par on this on this um this this what was it, some kind of factory or, or some major structure that China built for someone or. Uh, and, and I'm not sure. And they they re, they felt like they reneged on the on the on the loan or the deal or whatever it was, and they took some uh, collateral or whatever. Yeah, thank you, Brother Moses. There's a narrative, a narrative. People have different takes on China participation in Africa, the African development, and was not if they genuine uh, helping Africa develop. Or are they doing the same thing that the West have done? That is to exploit and take advantage of Africa for their interests and needs. Uh, that, that's a narrative, a narrative that's out there. Many times come from the West, but, you know, um, that's a narrative. So she was speaking in terms of the many projects that has been, um, that has taken place in various African countries uh, from China and how it may have an impact. Or the people. So let me say this: um, long protracted struggle between capitalism and communism. There's a, there's a period called socialism, and um, capitalism doesn't isn't ended in socialism. It exists during socialism because if it, if it didn't exist, there would we would be straight into communism. Um, uh, the first principle of, of I think that Marx, as they envisioned, because they, this was like the vision, and uh, nobody had put this. The closest person, the first person who really put it into practice, was the Paris Commune for a brief second, and then the Soviet Union came in with the great, great, great uh, experiment and uh, and uh, and put it into practice, and so. But as as Marx and them envisioned it, it was, socialism will be the first stage will be from each according to their ability to each according to their deeds, and you, and then in the second stage, the higher stage would be from each according to their ability to each according to their needs. 
and because uh, there would be more abundance uh, in the higher states, uh, people wouldn't people you wouldn't have to, you wouldn't require anything of of anybody in the in the lower stage it's peaceful according to their deeds you're you're actually you're requiring something of them in order to 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 uh take care of their their situation uh uh and uh um so you know socialism is is a struggle this is not something that happens overnight uh it takes it takes a politicized people, a, politi- a real conscious people. That's why Cuba is so amazing that they're able to withstand the onslaught of the U.S. government and all this might um, because they have a unified people in, co- in terms of conscious, political conscious, awareness of who this person is and what they're about. For instance, we would, somebody said something about um, Pamela Harris being replaced. Now, a concrete analysis of concrete conditions means you got to know, you got to know the people, you got to know their personality, you got to know know their politics, and uh, so when 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 I heard when I heard that, I mean, I knew that was uh, just some kind of Republican or or oppositional. Somebody wants to whip up something uh, uh, information because because. Uh, uh, Biden, Biden is is has certain certain qualities of his own and unique to his his personality. He has an ideological and political line that he's toting, and we have to understand it for what it is. <laughs> and uh, and I I would seriously doubt that he would be dropping Pamela Harris right now. I just I I mean it's, it's too plus this early in in the it doesn't make like any sense. And so uh, it's just something that who was Donald Trump? We used to talk about fake news or something. But anyway, uh, um, I uh, I I'll leave it right there. Thank you. Thank you, Moses and Sister Eleanor. Your response to the race for Africa? Well, the race for Africa is definitely on, and uh, China is currently winning the race. And we saw in Djibouti what happened when Djibouti fell behind on its uh, debt that uh, China uh, seized the, I understand that they have uh, seized the port. And it's interesting that the railroad that they have built uh, uh, goes from Djibouti uh, into the heart of Africa. Um, the issue right now for uh, African nations is to form a unit, a unit in terms of its 54 nations voting as one through the AU. That has real value for Africa right now. The U.S as the um, the woman on uh, Gravitas talked about the soldiers, U.S. soldiers, well, they're in Cameroon because the U.S. has been there um, drudging a deep-sea port for air, oil exports out of the western Cameroon. Uh, you find uh, the U.S. in Mali because Libya was a, th- a tr- true threat 
not not as warriors, but uh, with Cubans bringing in medical doctors and other people. And then Mali, because the U.S. had, when there was a united Sudan, the U.S. had wanted to dump nuclear waste on the uh, uh, western Sudanese border uh, when uh, when it was uh, a united Sudan. So we see there's a great struggle right now. And uh, that checkbook is what China's holding. It's nothing like having a creditor where they have a big interest rate and you can never get from under their thumb. And the fact that uh, Chinese currency is being used in different countries throughout China and uh, the reality of the labor movement that China has going forward in uh in, in Africa right now in that uh, it is uh, less likely, maybe because of language barriers, I don't know why, to use African engineers and, uh, uh, and then to use Chinese engineers, but the labor movement, the, the, the low-paid wage laborers that are building this infrastructure are in fact the African people. The U.S. is trying to use some backdoor diplomacy, uh, which hasn't been effective because we don't have a solid foreign policy, and certainly not in Africa. We see the problem with the Tigray right now, and uh, uh, so we we see that this. This is our interest for one as uh, uh, freedom-loving democratic people uh, that stand up for not only uh, uh, democratic rights of of Africa and the diaspora, but also our Palestinian brothers and sisters and other oppressed people. Uh, Israel is seeking the votes of uh, African nations to support its Zionist its uh, Zionist apartheid interests and uh, and and hoping to have an uninformed uh, political structure neocolonialism is playing a role in Africa in that right now we have uh, persons who are interested in their personal riches we have uh, in Cameroon, we have that guy, Paul, that's been there 35 years. We have, oh, oh, I'm maybe pronouncing his name incorrectly, Ohari in, in Nigeria, who, as you know, uh, uh, last year, we're talking about 2021, suggested that the U.S. Uh, build a military base comparable to the one in Franklin, in, in Frankfurt, Germany, in, in Nigeria. So, uh, you know, uh, the African leadership isn't passive in in their roles there, but they don't seem – we need to have uh, uh, new African leadership. Uh, We need to see – there was an election in the Cameroon last fall in 2021, but there were no political changes. And uh, we saw with the pandemic in Kenya – that's for the very poor outside of Nairobi. If you didn't, if you weren't in by seven o'clock, you could be shot. And we saw where there were deaths of children and others because of uh, the lack of resource or access to vaccines and the uh, 
uh, impact the pandemic was having on Kenya. So we see right now uh, a great deal of chaos in in Africa, uh, and we see uh, for the first time as uh, uh, may have been mentioned, the glamorization of Africa. But uh, is the cobalt in particular in terms of our computers and our telephones, that's greatly needed. So, uh, and gold and, and, and these other resources, it's, it's, uh, it's, they, they buy cheap and sell high. And that's what seems to be happening in China, just like it dumps on the U.S. market, is dumping in the African market. So um, we must stand united, and we must work at educating and doing outreach uh, 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 domestically here in the United States and abroad in, in knowing each other and working together to form uh, – uh, um, productive businesses. I believe that that Bill Clinton uh, bill that he passed in 2000 where you get to do all this trading with the U.S., I think is, this is where U.S. labor could get involved and demand that those businesses and that trade be done by businesses that are worker-controlled, that we don't set up the old prototype of uh, you know one guy one one group of people making all the profits and the workers uh, not instead they should be worker owned and operated collectives and co-ops and other things with that uh, African Opportunity and Growth Act of 2000 so we see an opportunity for. Uh, organized labor in the United States to be involved, as well as our political leaders uh, uh, like Al Sharpton and others to uh, engage in uh, dialogue and, and, and discussion with the AU as a collective and uh, individually as nation states. You see, I see it as uh, this right now as a wonderful opportunity for Africans in America to um, help with the organization of the uh, growth through the um, uh, Growth and Opportunities Act uh, passed in the year 2000. Since it's up to 300 million now, from a mere 34 or 20, I believe it's 34 million. Yeah. Can, can you bring your point into a closing, please? You got about 30 seconds. Okay, in 30 seconds, Brother Africa, yes, he right now as us as workers and organized labor in the United States is having an opportunity to weigh in on the type of uh, organiz- uh, purchases that are made from African organiza- uh, companies to enrich the African continent itself. And we can chip away at uh, the neo-colonialist mentality. And China definitely is the big stakeholder there right now. You know, panelists, as a facilitator, I would like to take some liberties just to respond to a couple of things that I've heard so far in this particular discussion. And those things are, number one, I think we got to be careful sometimes when we hear narratives that are put out 
to the public as relates to the realities of what's going on with Africa, particularly countries that may not be necessary countries that come from the West. Um, because as we discussed earlier during the GEO about the FBI, CIA, and the other Western institutions, they have a very sophisticated propaganda machinery where they constantly put out fake news and fake narratives. So I'm not one of the opinion that necessarily have made a judgment that the relationship between China and Africa is one of necessary or bad and anti-African. That's number one. Number two is, is my understanding that U.S. foreign policy towards Africa is very clear and very precise. It's not pro-African. Any program and most programs, not damn near all programs, that are developed and come from the U.S. and from the State Department and the other economic institutions such as the World Bank, etc., those programs are clearly designed to exploit and undermine Africa independence and development. And and number three, I think definitely no matter what narratives that are out there, we owe it to ourselves not to only be aware of those narratives, but to research ourselves and come up with our own objective understanding of what may be the realities of Africa. So those are just my little commentary response based upon what I heard on this particular discussion, what I would like to do and keep it in the framework of the theme tonight, a reflection of events of the past year, 2020. Many times we talk about the economic system, capitalism, imperialism, but we don't have a quite a clear grip on the various tools of how they use to maintain power and manipulate others to do things that they want them to do. So what I'm going to do is play a little bit of this clipping that's titled, Who Control Our Money? We're talking about being money being used as a tool of control and oppression. I would like to play this clipping, and I'd like to get your response. I think it's important for our listening audience to understand this whole issue. Who are the players and how they control your money? So listen very carefully, please. This is Africa on the Move. Welcome to another Cold Fusion video. I'm going to start this video off with a quote. Henry Ford once said, It is well enough that the people of the nation do not understand our banking and monetary system. For if they did, I believe there would be a revolution before tomorrow morning. I quote this because it encapsulates the fact that the contents of this video may be unsettling compared to the videos that I normally make. I still feel compelled to make this video because I've been exploring the financial world for the last four years and it's definitely given me a more complete view of the world. I want to share some of what I've come across with you guys. I'm also going to do a video about cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin in the future. And to understand why Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies may continue to rise, it's critical that you understand the contents of this video. I hope that you find this topic interesting and that it inspires you to do your own research afterwards. Now, with that said, let's begin. So who controls all of our money? It's a simple question. We all know that you and I don't control it. Our employees don't control it. 
The companies that they work for don't control it. So who does? Where does it even come from in the first place? I'll give you a hint. Money does not come from the government. It's a seemingly obvious question that's never asked or taught in schools for some reason. Unfortunately, most people's lives are basically dedicated to money. It's all people ever worry about or talk about. We go to school to learn basically how to go to university, to learn the skills to get a good job so that we can trade hours of our lives all for this thing called money. So why wouldn't you want to know where money comes from and who issues it? Today in this very special video, you're about to find out the answer to the question of who controls all of our money. People today can tell something isn't quite right with our financial system, but they just can't put their finger on it. Some people think it's the failure of government, others think that it's the failure of capitalism itself. This video should clarify a few things. The year is 1694, and England had just suffered through 50 years of war. Exhausted, the English government needed loans to fund their political means. Brainchild of Scottish banker William Patterson, it was decided that a privately owned bank that could issue the money to the government out of thin air was to be the solution. This was the very first modern central banking system in the world. Central banking is more influential than laws, governments and politicians, but strangely not the focus of the general public. Fast forward to the early 20th century and after two failed attempts, a group of bankers wanted to put a central bank in the United States of America. It was December of 1910 and Senator Nelson Aldridge boarded a private train car in New York with six others. The six were not to be spotted by any news reporters to avoid questions. Their destination? Jekyll Island off the coast of Georgia. The meeting went for nine days and from that they created the Federal Reserve System. This is all documented and a matter of public record. Some of them went on to write about the meetings in their personal biographies. Here's a quote from Frank Vanderlip, President of the National City Bank of New York, February 9th, 1935, in the Saturday Evening Post. I was as secretive, indeed as furtive as any conspirator. Discovery we knew simply must not happen, or else all our time and effort would be wasted. If it were to be exposed that our particular group had got together and written a banking bill, that bill would have no chance whatever of passage by Congress. The six men that Nelson Aldridge brought together included the head of banks, branches of government such as the Treasury, and some of the richest people on earth at the time. To give you an idea of how rich they were, in 1910, these six men represented a quarter of the world's worth. The bankers told the American public that the purpose of the system was to stabilize the economy and to stop the grip of the Wall Street banks over America. The problem was, the guys that wrote the bill were the very same people they said they'd stop. If they succeeded, it will give a small group of men the ability to create money from nothing and loan it to the American government with interest. So why was it done in secret? Because the American people didn't want a central bank. Back then, unlike today, people knew what central banks were and understood them very well. Everywhere a central bank went, there'll be wealth inequality, wild swings between economic booms and busts, and after each bust, those at the top of society mysteriously came out richer while everyone else got poorer. Europe was the running example of this at the time. The Federal Reserve was originally drafted as the Aldridge Bill, but when it came into Congress, they recognized Senator Aldridge's name and smelt a rat. The bankers needed better cover. They decided to send two millionaire friends to carry the bill to quell the suspicions of Congress and renamed it the Federal Reserve Act. 
Next, in a textbook lesson of deceit, the bankers set out to fool the American people through disinformation. In the newspapers of the day, the bankers screamed and protested against the new Federal Reserve Bill. It would ruin the banks, they exclaimed. The average person read the protesting articles of the bankers and thought to themselves, if the bankers hate it, it must be good. And then they ended up unknowingly supporting a Trojan horse. The bankers also fooled Congress by putting clauses in the bill that limited their power only to remove them once the bill was passed. A double head fake of the public and Congress was all it took. The bill was passed on December 23, 1913, while most of Congress was out on holiday. And with that, a small group had complete monopoly over the issuing and creation of American money. Today, the Federal Reserve is the most powerful entity in the United States, and they're not ashamed to admit it either. Here's former Fed Chairman Alan Greenspan. What should be the proper relationship between a chairman of the Fed and a president of the United States? Well, first of all, the Federal Reserve is an independent agency, and that means basically that uh, there is no other agency of government which can overrule actions that we take. What the relationships are uh, don't frankly matter. In addition to this, it seems that the Fed can't even be touched by investigating parties. So I'm asking you if your agency has, in fact, according to Bloomberg, extended $9 trillion in credit, which, by the way, works out to $30,000 to every single man, woman, and child in this country. I'd like to know, if you're not responsible for investigating that, who is? We actually, we have responsibility for the Federal Reserve's programs and operations, audits, to conduct audits and investigations in that area. Um, in terms of who's responsible for investigating, would you mind repeating the question one more time? Mr. Chairman, my, my time is up, but I have to tell you honestly, I am shocked to find out that nobody at the Federal Reserve, including the Inspector General, is keeping track of this. So what does all of this have to do with me, you might be asking? I don't even live in the US. Well, two reasons. Number one, the central banking model from the Bank of England and the United States has now been put in all countries and even consolidated power in parts of Europe as the European Central Bank, or ECB. This unites separate countries under one economic policy. The only places in the world that don't have central banks are North Korea, Iran, and Cuba. In 2000, this list suspiciously included Afghanistan, Iraq, and Libya. And number two, since the end of World War II, the US dollar has been the reserve currency of the world. This means that all central banks hold US dollars in their reserves. In other words, all other currencies are backed by the US dollar. This directly links your country to the Federal Reserve's monetary policy in America. More on this later. When the post-World War II monetary system, called the Bretton Woods system, was created, all US dollars were backed by and exchangeable for gold. A byproduct of this was that currencies used to be very stable in relation to each other. Before that, all the countries, the exchange rates were fixed, and year after year you could predict what prices were going to be. You could start a business elsewhere, know if you were, you know, you could calculate profits. Business was much, much easier before floating exchange rates. Unfortunately, in 1971, due to a falling US dollar, international capital flows into gold, and the funding of the Vietnam War, President Nixon took the US dollar off the gold standard. I have directed Secretary Connolly to suspend temporarily the convertibility of the dollar into gold or other reserve assets. 
Now the dollar was floating and backed by nothing and has been ever since. Okay, so let's think a little. If the US dollar is backed by nothing, but the world's reserves are backed by the US dollar, intrinsically, since 1971, doesn't this mean that all currencies are now backed by nothing tangible, only trust in the American government? Well, this is correct. Money backed by nothing is known as fiat currency. Fiat in Latin means let it be done. In other words, the government says it is money, so it is. A consequence to having money backed by nothing is that whenever the Federal Reserve creates money, it dilutes the currency supply of all other nations because their reserves are backed by the US dollar. All countries' reserves are worth less each time money is created. In the past few years, the Federal Reserve has printed trillions of dollars and countries like Russia and China have noticed this. As a reaction to the money printing, these countries have been selling US dollar reserves and buying gold over the same period. But wait a second. Some of you clever thinkers out there may have asked yourself, if every currency on earth is backed by nothing, how am I able to pay for things? Well, as it turns out, the whole economic system today is running because it's backed by faith. Faith that you can exchange your unit of currency for goods or services. In a way, part of that faith comes from the fact that not many people actually know where money comes from. We're about to find that out in this video. A central bank is essentially the entity that manages a nation's money supply, and it can loan money to the government with interest. In the United States and most other countries, it works like this. When the government needs more money than they receive from taxes, they ask the Treasury Department for money. The Treasury then receives an IOU, or bond, from the government. The Treasury, through the banks, gives this IOU to the Federal Reserve. The Fed then writes a check for this IOU and hands it to the banks. At this exchange at the banks, money is created and it can be used to pay government bills. So hang on, where does the Fed get the money to be able to write this check? They get this money from nowhere, they literally just invent it. Here's a quote from the Boston Federal Reserve, quote, When you or I write a check, there must be sufficient funds in our account to cover the check. But when the Federal Reserve writes a check, there is no bank deposit on which that check is drawn. When the Federal Reserve writes a check, it is creating money." End quote. So in essence, they're writing a check and creating money from an account that has no money in it. The money the Federal Reserve creates can be used as legal tender to buy things and eventually makes its way into the real economy. If you and I did that, we'd go to jail for fraud, but they can do it because they invented the system. This is the same system used throughout the world today. Another part of this money creation happens at the commercial bank side. Every time you take out a loan to buy a house, car or TV, banks create money out of nowhere to give you this loan and you still have to pay interest on it. And don't just believe me when I say that. Hear it for yourself from the horse's mouth, the people running the system. Graeme Towers, former governor of the Central Bank of Canada, states, quote, Each and every time a bank makes a loan, new credit is created, new deposits, brand new money, end quote. Paul Tucker, Deputy Governor of the Bank of England, quote, Banks extend credit by simply increasing the borrowing customer's current account, end quote. So what they're basically saying is that each time the bank makes a loan, the bank doesn't use other people's deposited money and give it to you. It creates new money. In modern times, this means typing digits into a computer. 97% of all money is digitally created like this. Only 3% is the physical cash and coins that we carry. 
Another crazy thing that commercial banks can do is lend out 10 times more money than they actually have in reserves. This is called fractional reserve lending. So who wrote this ridiculous system into law? For the United States, it was part of the Federal Reserve System drafted in 1913. And again, this is the same system used throughout the world. So what's the issue? Why should I even care? Well, there's consequences. When more loans are given out, more money is created and the rest of the money in circulation is worth less and less as the years go on. This is known as inflation. In a way, inflation is basically a tax that we all pay for the fraud of money printing. Easy money now in exchange for tax on our future generations. It's also why in 1950, a house used to cost $7,000 and a car, $2,000. Obviously, this is no longer the same today. Things will always keep getting more expensive as long as this system is in place. This was actually kind of okay because wages grew in relation to inflation until about 2008. Why this stopped happening is a story for another day. Let me start right there. If you want to listen to the entirety of this particular um, narrative or who control all our money, you can go to YouTube and check it out. But we're comfortable, Brother Hackey. We actually take a lead in terms of what we talk about, the importance of understanding how this financial system works and how the whole concept of money came into existence. Um, what would you say based upon the fact that here in this particular You are watching Cold Fusion TV. Brother Hackey, can you hear me? Say again, Brother Africa. Yes, your response is how money, this whole question of who controls our money and the history of central banks and what it, be, what it really means to how it undermines the interests of, of, of governments and people. What is just your response to this piece in terms of why it's important to understand this whole question of how money is used, created, and what it really means to a people's survival? Well, well, well. In a nutshell, it's good to understand how mo- what, what it means to have what, what money creation really means. In essence, what it does, it creates winners and losers. So you have a situation which started back in the early 19th century, in which six individuals decided, you know, that the right to create money was their exclusive domain. In that context, their right to to by by, by their right in terms of you know uh, the, having the right to create money. They can determine who gets the money. So this is important we understand. In the context of capitalism, when we talk about who has the right to get to the money, the, the piece talked about the fact that you have a situation where essentially where the, where the, the um, Federal Reserve receives these IOUs from the Treasury. The Treasury, in, well, let me put, explain to people a different way, which may be clearer. Treas- what happens is the Treasury initi- initiates bond, bonds uh, to the Federal Reserve. The Federal Reserve take those bonds, those bonds become part of the financial situation as far as the Fed is concerned. The Fed put those bonds on the book and, and treat it as, as though it's cash. They then take that cash and they write checks out to banks. And this is all done electronically. It does, it's not necessarily in terms of physical money. It's done electronically. But the problem is that in doing this, by giving this money, you know, in, in terms of from you know from the from the from the treasury to the feds to the banks, it's actually determined who has access to wealth. 
the banks, in turn, only give that wealth to people who are, quote, unquote, qualified to receive such wealth. Who is qualified to receive such wealth? It is wealthy people. It is corporations and or wealthy people. And so when I talk about winners and losers, this is the thing I keep trying to get people to understand. People understand, they ask the question, why is there poverty? There's poverty because the people positions of power, the people who created the system, the Federal Reserve System, want to make sure there is poverty. In fact, if you stop and think about it, there should be no poverty at all. If you have the right to, to merely write checks in terms of, in terms of in, uh, ensuring people have access to wealth, then there should be no poverty in the system. So then the question is, so why is there poverty in the system? Because it's a question of winners and losers. Capitalism is not about economics. See, people keep thinking that, well, you know, capitalism is about economics. It has nothing to do with economics. Capitalism is about power and status, very simply. And so, therefore, the people who are, who are, who are deemed uh, beneficiaries of power and status happen to be those individuals who are wealthy. And this is what we have to understand. Now, here's the thing. There is no end in terms of this, this wealth formula, form, you know, form, uh, for, uh, formulation. They can give they they give wealth to very powerful people who would then turn take that wealth and what do they do they buy they buy all the assets houses cars property uh, they own all stocks they own all of the stuff what happens to the value of all that stuff they own it increases we call it inflation but what the wealth calls it they call it an incentive to get to get more wealthy we don't understand that. So we buy into the system thinking that somehow that it's in our interest to support it, not understanding that who do you think, by virtue of creating money which is essentially worthless, because all, the more money you print, the more or less value it has, who do you think finances that? Who thinks finances a system where increasingly those same which people who get all of the money, didn't take all that money, buy all the assets, and, 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 and the monies for those assets are taken offshore, but they're hidden in, in bank accounts. So they get wealthier and wealthier and wealthier, but the government becomes poorer and poorer and poorer. Well, somebody has to finance the government in terms of the revenues. Who do you think finance the government in terms of revenues? Poor people, working people. We do. We don't understand that inflation is an invisible tax. It has nothing to do in terms of supply and demand. Inflation is an invisible tax. We poor people, working people, we subsidize wealthy people, and by virtue of subsidizing wealthy people, we subsidize the government. We don't understand that because we're being taught not to understand that. So we don't understand. We think inflation is just something that is a part of a supply and you know, supply and demand that because of the scarcity, then you know we prices increase and that's why we have inflation. That's not what inflation is. Uh, but, but 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 just to get home, bring home to the point that you were raising, Brother Africa, I think that it's important that people understand, you know, that this that this, this that this that this that this process in terms of money creation is unsustainable. And this is what we have been saying. So even though currently you have a system where you got the Federal Reserve, which is the, which is which is the, which is the the, 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 the the pinnacle of the of the global economic system, followed by the European Common Banks and the Bank of England working in concert to make sure they control all economic activity throughout the world. Understand that even though they have absolute control in terms of the money supply that exists around the world, at least in terms of the money they create, they have total control over that. The more they create that money, the more they actually impoverish the world, which explains why you have which, which explains why you have massive poverty throughout the world. It's not a fluke; it's all by design. And this is what people don't understand. 
And so anytime people, uh, and so the problem is that anytime uh, you don't control uh, your means in terms of your, your, your currency, then you're at the mercy of banks, the Federal Reserve, the Commonwealth, the European Common Bank, and the Bank of England. You're at their, their, their mercy. And so this is why when Gaddafi talked about a United Bank of Africa, he was saying the only way we can compete economically is that we have to establish a bank in which we set the commodity price of our resources. Our resources, we set the price. It's the only way you can compete. As long as you're beholden to the powers of the Federal Reserve, the European Common Bank, and the Bank of England, then they can continue to keep you impoverished. So it's all part of a process. So no one should be deceived in thinking that you know, this system is, 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 is just or fair or that it gives a damn about inequality. It's built upon injustice and inequality. I think people have to understand that fundamental point. Thank you, Brother Harkey. Brother Anthony, in the piece who control and own our money, what did you take from it? What I took from it, uh, I concur with all the points Harkey raised, and I would add another one. Uh, the imperialists control the military, military control, which is how they're able to force the world to buy into this. Now, uh, uh, it should be noted that there are, only, there are only about three countries in the world that don't have a central bank. Uh, the Democratic People's Republic of Korea, Iran, and Cuba, which I think is rather significant. And uh, and the thing and and the thing is though once again it points out how how critical political power is to solving our problem. That is why Africa needs political unification uh, because all the other forms of unification without that political unification don't mean anything. And uh, and also, once Africa's politically unified, then it can create a central bank and all African high command to defend itself against its, its enemies. And it can dictate uh, the price of its resources. Without that unification, none of this is possible. And uh, so Pan-Africanism becomes very critical in terms of ensuring not only our liberation, but also our survival as a people worldwide. Thank you, Brother Anthony. Brother Moses, your response to this piece on who owns and controls your money? Money, 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 money. Well, uh, the, the my thing, uh, the most interesting point I would like to make about that is that um, I think it's generally accepted that that the anchor of the dollar, and what's 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 what keeps the dollar, if if you can call it legitimate, legitimate, is that um, is that the OPEC countries um, trade in dollars. Um, the, they were able to convince 
and keep the oil industry on a dollar basis. And so what we have is petrodollars, as they say. Um, um, and so it's not like there's no um, natural resource or or, or um, um, some kind of backing of the dollar. Uh, it's not totally it's floating, but it's not totally floating. Uh, uh, um, and um, I, I don't know. Other than that, I'll just leave it right there. Thank you. And Sister Eleanor, <clears throat> your take on this issue. Well, we can see why we need a central bank, why Gaddafi was moving in the right direction of a central bank of Africa. And also, uh, we saw that at one point, uh, the, the U.S. was considered stable, so it was only a few currencies that the world would trade in. That was the the franc, a French franc, and uh, the British pound sterling and the yen. But uh, that really became visible when Newt Gingrich in '95 shut down the U.S. government. So suddenly. The U.S. economy and the U.S. dollar wasn't that secure uh, uh, investment, so you begin to see people uh, diversify in terms of currency and use that U.S. Uh, uh, um, pound, that that British money as well as the yen, and uh, move uh, move away from, for the first time, consider moving away from the dollar. And uh, capitalism isn't limited to the United States. The only thing the United States had going was somewhat the ease were kind of well-managed. And uh, so we we can see why uh, in order to have control of your resources right now for Africans, for the African continent, that they need to control uh, uh, their banking system at some kind of uh, control of the banking system. And it was very interesting. It is very true that uh, inflation is a, a form of taxation. Haki, that was very, very eloquent, and it and it truly is. And that that's where I'll leave it for right now. But Brother Africa, I'd like to say something really quickly. Um, in, in terms of our first segment, when I was talking about that African Growth Opportunity Act, I was just talking about one little thing, one little thing that us as Africans could utilize to affect the economic growth of Africa. Because clearly the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund, they're underdeveloping Africa. And so that was just one little opportunity where people that are making businesses uh, in Africa who are, live here and go back and forth will have an opportunity to talk, to begin to set up worker run and operated businesses and rather just having straight old rip-off capitalist businesses. I see so many products now coming from Africa in the last 20 years when I never saw them commercially bought. It was always small entrepreneurs that would bring cloth and bring garments and bring different things. But now you see them traded uh, in a, a larger scale. So I just wanted to clarify that that uh, uh, I'm clearly aware of the undermining of uh, 
Africa by the World Bank and uh, International Monetary Fund. But Thank you, Susan. That African Opportunity and Growth Act is a chance to set up co-ops and do things in Africa uh, to enrich African people. And and uh, that's an opportunity we should take advantage of. The only problem I'm raising, Susanna, and I'm not sure if we're communicating in that understanding, is even under, <clears throat> excuse me, that particular act, if you look at the rules and the policies that govern it, it's not structured in a way where really um, a good measurement to really to, to conduct new business that will be favorable favorable to our development. That's the point that I'm I'm trying to make. But you know we can can um, have this discussion um, in a future program. But I do acknowledge the point that you have just raised. I thank you. What we want to do right now, we're going to continue as we talk about some of the past programs and events that have taken place this past year, 2021. That was an interesting feature that we did dealing with this whole issue of um, this question of, of, of artifacts, art, culture, that belongs owned by African people that has been stolen. Let's go back and remember name, take a um, review of this and come back and continue to discuss this a little more. Cause I think it's very important, particularly in terms of this propaganda battle, battle or was or not if African people was a ahistorical people. If it was an ahistorical people, why is there what there was a need to steal our culture, steal our artifacts, and not only steal it, but even today, to maintain them and continue to make money of it. So we're going to take a look at this whole documentary titled Museums Must Return Stolen Artifacts. Have you heard of the Rosetta Stone? It's one of the most precious artifacts of all time, the first clue to understanding ancient Egyptian scripts. It led to the discovery of at least three writing systems. This stone is as old as modern civilization, the Rosetta Stone. Then we have the Elgin Marbles. A set of Greek sculptures from the 5th century, they were built to decorate Parthenon, the temple of Athena. They're exquisite, just like the Benin bronzes. This is a collection of metal plaques. They once decorated the kingdom of Benin. The Benin bronzes are an African treasure. They show how skilled African artists were. Then comes the Tanjaur Shiva, another masterpiece. It's a bronze statue of Lord Shiva, the Hindu god made almost a thousand years ago during the Chola dynasty, a testimony to the remarkable craftsmanship of the sculptors of ancient India. These are all stunning pieces of art. Do you know what's common between them? They're all present in the British Museum, or should I say the British Warehouse of Loot. These artifacts were either stolen or won by force or acquired unfairly. Today they serve as a cruel reminder of colonial times. But the British Museum displays them with pride. It presents them as prized treasures, showing no sense of remorse for the past crimes or gratitude for the people from whom these were taken. And why just Britain? Museums across Europe are filled with such objects, with uncomfortable histories linked to colonialism. So here's a question. Do they have the right to keep displaying these objects? 
Hello and welcome to Gravitas Plus. I'm Palki Sharma Upadhyay. They say in law, a thief is not allowed to keep ill-gotten gains. No matter how long ago they were taken, they must be returned. No matter how much that thief may have improved them, they must be returned. European nations wrongfully took cultural riches. They took them from countries that are now independent states. But most of them refused to even discuss returning them. They refused to make reparations for their historical wrongs. According to the Archaeological Institute of America, 85 to 90% of classical artifacts in museums do not have a documented provenance, meaning they don't have a record of ownership or a record of origin through which museums can justify their right to possess these objects. Most of these artifacts are from Africa and Asia. In 2018, the French government commissioned a report. Guess what they found? Nearly 90% of Africa's cultural heritage is held by museums and institutions outside of Africa. Nearly 90%. France alone has 90,000 such objects, stolen objects. A majority of them can be found at the Cave Ronley Museum. It's a state-of-the-art museum situated in Paris. It holds a vast collection of art. Indigenous art from the eight African colonies that France once ruled. Last month, French President Emmanuel Macron decided to make some amends. He made French museums bid adieu to a trove of treasures. At least 26 stolen artifacts taken from the Kingdom of Benin were sent back. The works included palatial doors and royal thrones. They were all returned as a gesture of humility. Today's gesture is the possibility for the youth of Benin, the youth of Africa, to retrieve the works of their history and heritage, to be able to admire them at home. And I hope that this movement will continue and that the universal will be accessible in Cotonou as in Paris. And we will continue this work together. This move has had ramifications across Europe and the U.S. It has opened a debate on looted artifacts, a debate to send them back to their country of origin. A few museums have decided to do this. They've ceded ground. They've begun a process of restitution, but most of the mighty museums are playing ostrich. I'm talking about the big ones, like the British Museum in London, the Louvre in Paris, the Humboldt Forum in Berlin, the Getty Center in Los Angeles, the Metropolitan in New York. They're all playing dumb. These museums have locked up the precious legacy of a million people and they reject all demands to return any of it. They consider these artifacts as spoils of war, an argument that does not hold water, neither morally nor legally. International law does not allow it. You see, the concept of finders keepers does not apply anymore. There's a United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People. It reaffirms the right of a country to reclaim its treasures. It obliges museums to return property that was taken without free, prior and fair consent. In fact, this has been recognized by courts. In England, Ireland and the US, courts have ruled in favor of returning wrongfully acquired artifacts. They've said that other countries have sovereignty over items which they think constitute keys to their heritage. And it's not just courts who back this call. Human rights treaties also support what they call the right to culture. The right to reclaim what belongs to your culture. Take India, for instance. It was colonized for two centuries by the United Kingdom. And this was colonialism in its most predatory form. The British looted everyone and everything. In today's value, this loot would amount to a sum of $45 trillion. This is according to research by Columbia University Press. 
It says Britain drained a total of $45 trillion from India. Shouldn't the UK pay reparations for this? Forget reparations. The least it can do is return India's stolen artifacts, like the Kohinoor, one of the most precious diamonds in the world. This diamond was mined at the Kulur mine in India. It was unfairly ceded to Queen Victoria when Britain annexed Punjab in 1849. Today it adorns Queen Elizabeth's crown. Another priceless artifact is Maharaja Ranjit Singh's throne. It's covered with sheets of engraved gold. After the Anglo-Sikh war, it was moved to the Albert Museum. It's been in Britain ever since. Just like the sandstone idol of Lord Harihara from Madhya Pradesh. This 500 kg copper Buddha from Bihar. The sword of Tipu Sultan. They're all locked up at museums in Britain. What's the UK's excuse to keep them? Their argument is incredible. Most of the museums in Britain say their only aim is to make these objects available to all so that people from all over the world can come and see them, learn more about the roots and cultures they go from. They say they keep them for the rest of the world. Do you believe this? Do you buy this argument? It's like saying that some kid from Africa can always go to Britain to learn more about her culture. Why? Because Britain is the cultural capital of the world. Capital of colonial loot, more like. As for the public service they claim to do, here's what. People from all over the world can see African art in Africa too and Indian art in India too. In fact, the whole concept of these museums is more like a colonialist fantasy of neatly cataloguing the entire world in a single air-conditioned building so that Westerners do not have to cross continents to uncomfortable climates to see them. My point is quite simple. Artifacts belong to the countries of their origin, to places where they can best be appreciated, to people for whom they have the most meaning. So by holding on to them and displaying them for a fee, Western museums are still benefiting from their colonial legacy, still validating their historical wrongs and injustices. Their empires have crumbled, but their sense of entitlement has not. We welcome you back to Africa on the Moon. We are using very materials from YouTube under the Fair Use Act, and you were just listening to it. One of the documentaries titled Museums Must Return Stolen Artifacts. So our political panelists today, we are speaking to the theme and reflections of events of the past year, 2021, and we'd like to invite you as well. If you listen to the program, if you have any events that you would like to um, reflect on for the past years, just recently um, passed by, uh, please do so by contacting us at 323-679-0841. Hit 1, and then we'll, we will acknowledge your last four numbers. And going back to this piece dealing with stolen African artifacts, we start off with you, Brother Anthony. Many times when you talk about reparations, and what have you, people always think about money. But how important is it for African people, and all oppressed people who um, historical art that has been stolen from them should be returned back, as well as be compensated for all the money that may have been made from these art that was not given back to the proper country and people that it belongs to. Your response, Brother Anthony? Certainly. Um, the artifacts should be returned to their countries of origin because 
these artifacts form a, an important part of the history and culture of those societies that they came from. And uh, they could be very useful in terms of teaching our youth the truth of our history and the role that we've played in human development uh, locally and internationally. And uh, my thought is that the uh, that the cultural artifacts that were stolen from Africa by whatever means, through warfare, trade, or what have you, will not be returned to Africa until we achieve Pan-Africanism, the total liberation and unification of Africa under scientific socialism. It is only then will we have the political and economic power necessary to pressure the return of these artifacts to their native homeland. Thank you, Brother Anthony. Brother Haki, they often say the proof is in the pudding. Now, if the proof is in the pudding, Brother Haki, what kind of psychological propaganda game has been played on African people when the Western world said we have no value and no use? No, 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 no use in terms of um, being able to develop and create things for humanity. If we have no no value and no use for humanity, if we are considered someone who never created anything, then why would you still do things that people have created and put in your museum and market it all around the world? to talk about how great it is. I don't understand that contradiction, Brother Hackey. Talk to me. Yeah, well, you know, uh, I think we, we have to start with the, um, the, the relevance of history. Uh, one of the things um, the West has, has um, been very effective in doing is sort of, re, re, um, sort of rewriting the narrative. Uh, there's a book called Historians Against History by G.W. Nobles, and what it talks about is a covenant agreed upon by Western leaders to write Africa out of the history of the world. Uh, one of the things for writing the history of, writing the history of Africa out, uh, you can justify all kinds of um, pseudoscience, in particular when it comes to things like race. One of the biggest obstacles in terms of world domination is a, is a, is a, a world which fundamentally understands that we're all one organism. And when we talk about the origin of human beings and we go right back to Africa, which all of us come from, and so in order to perpetuate this myth that, in fact, that we're different, then the history of Africa had to have been destroyed, and that's precisely what they did. So it's just one of those manifestations they use in terms of sort of destroying the history of Africa, you know, by, uh, you know, taking that art and 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 putting it in these Western museums, they give it a sort of different narrative. It doesn't have the same type of uh, of, of impact. It has, if, let's say, if you go to Africa or to India or wherever to view the artwork. When you view it with a Western context, and certainly the, the implication is, or certainly the perception may be, 
that in fact uh, there's something inferior about these people, you know, uh, because their artwork is here. That maybe these people who created this art couldn't value the art, so this is why it's in the Western Museum. So clearly they have some incentives from a psychological point of view in terms of promoting this notion that African people, African people have no value or really of no use. And so that's simply a political ploy in which they use. But let me just talk briefly a little bit about the culture, Brother Africa. I think this is important. It, which gets to the question in terms of the whole question in terms of value of, of, of African lives. One of the things when you talk about the question of culture, you know, one of the things that culture culture entails many, 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 many variables. Among culture, you got to look at the terms of the role of values. Also, you got to look at the role in terms of the the, the history, uh, certainly the precedents that have been that history that history sets. Also, you got to look at the question in terms of self actualization. So in those pieces that were stolen by the by you know by West you know by the West, uh, it conveys a lot in terms of the kind of values that Africans hold or Indians hold, or it talks or or, or, or it, it elaborates a great deal in terms of the kind of history in terms of what what what, what was valued, uh, what was important, uh, what was the best way to proceed, how do you interact with your other fellow human being, which is all historical questions, and so the artwork gives you some clue in terms of how Africans saw themselves as well as how they saw the world. Also, the question in terms of self-actualization is that, you know, the fact that, you know, that, you know, I, you know, I am somebody. You know, I exist, I am somebody. And so, when, so typically when you talk about the context of traditional African society, this question in terms of relationship, you know, not just with others, but with the relationship with the higher powers is something that's really quite evident. And so, therefore, the artwork reflects this sensitivity, this, 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 this notion you know that I'm 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 a very small part of a much broader reality in which you know I'm coping to navigate, and so by obscuring me by by hiding the artifacts, then all of that history which is so vital to the aspirations of human beings across the board are simply denied, and so that's part of the that's part, certainly part of the motivation. But in closing, brother Eric, let me also add that one of the things is that, you know, when we talk about stolen artifacts, we can't dismiss the Vatican's role in this. And so when we talk about the origin of human beings and we talk about the, 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 those people who contribute you know, to our understanding of spirituality, uh, whether we're talking about Islam, Judaism, or Christianity, or whatever we're talking about, then the role of African people plays an eminent part in terms of that. And, in fact, all of those questions could easily be answered, you know, by simply releasing that artwork that the Vatican holds secretly in vaults and ensuring that only certain people have access to view this, this kind of material, these kind of artifacts. So clearly, Brother Africa, uh, you know, this is all part of a grand strategy. So, you know, no one would anticipate that the Western nation is going to give that up. Uh, the question of money is one question. Surely monetary considerations is part of it. But a bigger consideration is, is the, con the continuation of this narrative, which says that somehow that white skin uh, makes you uh, somehow uh, uh, much more important, uh, so much more uh, a, a, a intimate part of, 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 of the world history than all others. So I think that, that to a large extent, is a bigger motivation in terms of this desire, in terms of not returning those artifacts to places of, of, of origin. Thank you, Brother Haki, Sister Eleanor, for your perspective. Is this an act of a crime against humanity? Um, I, I think that um, uh, conservation of uh, art 
and, and these things is a world issue now. And we see um, India now as superpower definitely wants uh, their work. And uh, I think it's a, it's a new issue that's just being looked at because we, we saw in previous episodes of the show how Brazil is working with uh, uh, the indigenous people to uh, conserve its culture and art and recognize its um, particular groups of people as a part of the national heritage. So it's, it's definitely uh, um, something very important. And we are seeing conservation efforts and the development of um, archival programs, conservation and museums uh, being established in West Africa. And we've seen a lot of development in East Africa, in Egypt, and and uh, we're going to continue to see that type of development. And at those times, these uh, items will be returned to their countries of origin, and we'll begin to see, I would think, uh, traveling programs, traveling exhibit programs, which are very common with uh, museums now. You see in the Smithsonian, there's sites, and it travels exhibits throughout the country and the world. We see, uh, as she mentioned, the Louvre, we've seen exchanges between the National Gallery of Art, the Mellon Foundation, to allow the Mona Lisa to visit here. That costs a great deal of money, conservation, shipping, traveling, crating, so much goes into that. And we're going to see more of this begin to happen. And clearly the Benin uh, art is, uh, uh, she bought that up initially. But uh, the, the, right now what uh, Ghana is doing, for example, is working on developing uh, uh, a museum program akin to uh, any Western nation working in conjunction with the Smithsonian. So we're going to see more and more of that. And it's a, it's a, a wonderful area um, to uh, review and understand the arts and conservation and uh, how much education and, and value there is from art exchanges. Um, it's, it's just uh, wonderful. And I don't think it's uh, anything but the future is bright in the area of, of development of art, art conservation and museum programs globally. Thank you, Susan Moore and Brother Moses, your response. Yeah, art, art to serve the people. And, um, you know, we find, we find that um, as dialectical and historical materialists, we, we must recognize um, all the material objects that have been created and the time period they were created in, what purpose they served as a historical um, icon. And uh, certainly, you know, as, as in terms of Pan-Africanism and Africans controlling Africa, we, we want to control the, the artwork that was produced there and uh, and so it's understandable. Like I said, it's dialectical historical materialism. We have to put everything in, in its proper place, and there's a correct ideological and political line on on our, every question that must be, you know, taken up. And so, um, 
definitely African art for back to Africa uh, um, in terms of possession and control and uh, all power to the people. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Moses. You know, panelists, I thought it's sort of funny where um, you look at this practice where they take um, African people out and then take their same art and make them go and pay to see themselves. I, I find that feel uh, real, real interesting. But anyway, let's continue down our path, and this will be our last uh, reflection uh, for this year, 2021. During this program, we always try to point our people in the right direction and give them a sense of where we should be going. Now, listen to one of Alan's brother, Kwame Ture. He left a message for our people. He's going to talk about the importance of Pan-Africanism, socialism, and we'll be back with y'all's final response. Pan-Africanism must come from the bottom up, from the masses of the people up. It is here then that we'll come to see the real aspect of Pan-Africanism. We said that in the Fifth Pan-African Congress, they called for mass organizations, and immediately mass organizations sprang up throughout the length and breadth of the African world. The Conventional People's Party, a mass party, sprang up in Ghana. The Democratic Party of Guinea, a mass party, sprang up in Guinea. Throughout the length and breadth of Africa, you had the TANU, the Tanzanian African National Union, which is now the CCM. My Swahili is uh, not as good as yours. Uh, Chimpa, Chimpuraza, Mazuri. That's very good. Oh, <laughs> my, my Swahili is bad. <laughs> Thank you. Exactly, exactly. And uh, that's their new party. But all over Africa, mass parties sprung up. If you look at the Caribbean, mass parties sprung up. And if you look at the United States, mass movements sprang up. So the call was heeded for mass confrontation. Of course, the Fifth Pan-African Congress made two definite and precise resolutions which I want to uh, highlight. Of course, Pan-Africanism from the very beginning was anti-colonial. From the very beginning it was anti-colonial. It was weak. So when they came, they didn't say to the queen, we're going to put you out of the country. They said, you must treat the natives right. You must educate them. You must prepare them for self-government. These are things that are weak, but they were anti-colonial in essence. We must not look at the form. And we got stronger, the more this anti-colonialism will express itself. Now, anti-colonialism is nothing but anti-capitalism. Because colonialism is nothing but an offshoot, an aspect of capitalism. Therefore, if you're anti-colonial, you must be anti-capitalist, if you're logical in your thinking, of course, and your actions. Some people are not, but we are speaking of logical people here. <laughs> if you're anti-capitalist, then you must be socialist. Capitalism cannot unite Africa. Africa has to be united by socialism. Now, there's a lot of confusion here on this question of capitalism and socialism. Just recently, a young man said to me, but socialism died. I said, it did. He said, you didn't hear about it. I said, I missed the funeral. <laughs> of course, he spoke about the betrayals that occurred in the East. You must not let capitalism confuse your thinking. This is a struggle which Pan-Africanism takes on. We struggle against imperialism in the illogical arena because many people think that capitalism just wants to exploit your labor. It wants to confuse your thinking and make you think just like them. And this is where the real fight occurs. So therefore, this struggle of confusing the thinking, I told the man, I said, you're talking nonsense. Socialism cannot uh, uh, disappear. It cannot die. He said, yes, it can. I said, no. He said, how do you say that? I said, well, you are judging uh, socialism by socialists. You don't do that. He said, I've never heard such nonsense. If you don't judge socialism by socialists, what do you judge it by? I say, you judge it by its principles. Every system is judged by its principles, never its adherence. So he still saw confusion. He said, you're just talking double talk. I said, okay, do you judge Christianity by Christians?
So we must not be confused here. Socialism doesn't fall because of betrayal. No system does. The person who betrays themselves goes to the mud, but the system with its eternal principles keep marching on. If a system fell because of betrayal, Christianity would have been finished with Judas. At least Judas had the dignity to hang himself. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Some of these who betray socialism don't have that dignity. Gorbachev still runs around speaking, and I'm picking up 30 pieces of silver everywhere. Yeah. So uh, socialism is an economic system, and there can only be two in the world, capitalism or socialism, because every economic system must answer one fundamental question. Who will own and control the wealth of the country? Who will own and control the means of production? The question can only be answered two ways. Either a few will own or everyone will own. It's as simple as that. And under capitalism, we say, please summarize that we might have. No, I'm going. I thought I had 20 minutes. It's my t I thought I had 20 minutes. I was going by the clock. How much time do I have left? I'm sorry. Maybe I'm off. That's what I thought I did. I was watching. Now I'm watching my clock. I'm a responsible. I'm rev revolutionary. I go by time. I got my clock right here. Matter of fact, I can say it in two words, black power. <laughs> <laughs> and today we've gone to one, Pan-Africanism. <laughs> yeah. So there are only two economic systems, and it's going to be capitalism or socialism. Capitalism is a backward system. There's no need to discuss it. Certainly anyone who's been made a slave by capitalism ought to be hesitant in trying to support the system. But as a conscious African, I must be against capitalism, and I must, of course, seek to destroy it. So in, when you speak of Pan-Africanism, you must understand you speak of socialism. And we want to underline there's only one socialism out here, and that's scientific socialism, whose principles are abiding and universal. There's no such thing as African socialism, Chinese socialism, Russian socialism, Arab socialism. There's only one socialism. The confusion arises over ideology. That is that which guides you towards your objective. So we're saying clearly here, Pan-Africanism is not an ideology. It is an objective. It is an achievable. Pan-Africanism is the total liberation and unification of Africa under scientific socialism. All we want is a unified continent with a socialist system. That's all. But you know Africa is the richest continent in the world. When she's properly organized, she'll be the most powerful. Yeah, of course. Of course. And me, all I want is power. <laughs> I'm not like others. I don't want money. I don't want popularity. I just want the power I'm supposed to get. That's all. <laughs> That's all. <laughs> We'd like, like to welcome you back to Africa on the Move on the 16th of January, 2022. We're speaking on the theme tonight, the reflection of events of the past year, 2022. We'll be making our closing remarks at this point in time for our political panelists and analysts, and we would like them to speak to this issue of looking at the path of Pan-Africanism and Socialism. Is there, is this a, a viable alternative to our people dealing with problems? Signing off right now with your thoughts, Brother Moses. Can we hear you, Brother Moses? Come talk to us. I Pan-Africanism is the unification of Africa under scientific socialism. And we have to understand the theory and practice of scientific socialism. Socialism is a, is a, a protracted, long struggle between capitalism and communism. It's a, a political economy, you know, uh, 
And um, it just the people are in the struggle for liberation, and uh, and there's a lot of issues come up and a lot of problems come up, and um, capitalism still exists, but because the capitalist voters are within the party, and the, and um, and um, we have to be on guard for for manifestations of capitalism and correct them, uh, just like racism, sexism. And, and all the all the other problems that we are faced with these days, we have to be on the correct side of history, and um, have the have the compassion, the empathy, and the altruism to love the vast majority of the people and look out for their interests. And uh, you know, this political economy means people have to be politicized, like. And the Cuba, Cuba is Cuba because the people are politicized, and that's and it's and it's going to take a politicized people to unify Africa under scientific socialism. It's going to be a lot of political consciousness. Uh, Walter Rodney's "How You Up Develop Africa" is still applicable today in terms of the struggle, and we have to understand it for what it's worth. And so, you know, it takes a political consciousness. It's not just like there's some kind of economic system, like some kind of machine you start up, and the machine automatically trumps out socialism or something. This is a real struggle between real people in terms of what needs to be done and what path needs to be taken, how you how you build this or how you don't build it, what what needs to be done, and and um. You know, it's a lot easier said than done, but I think it's amazing that that China is uh, China took up the cross and um uh, and um uh, and is on the path and uh, um as long as they have the 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 people in the right direction, um they shall prosper. Uh, I. I think, you know, i just leave it right there. Thank you. Thank you, Brother no- Moses. Talk to me, Sister Eleanor. Is Pan-Africanism Socialism an alternative to our people daily problems? It is the most responsible alternative to our people daily problems. The, the mission right now, as in the United States, as in Africa, in the United States is to uh, alert millions and millions of people that we are the working class, that if you go out and you are earning a wage, that you're a worker, and to stop us from identifying with the 1% who control the means of production. And if we didn't learn anything during the pandemic, we should certainly learn how capitalism does not work in our interest, how Moderna and Pfizer refuse to allow the production of vaccines by nations like South Africa, Egypt, Morocco, uh, Ghana, Nigeria, and nations that are able to produce this vaccine. They'd rather see a person die than to lose a, a payment, a $35 payment for a vaccine. And we see the generosity of the Cuban people in, in exchanging the vaccine abroad and other places. So definitely socialism is the solution. The, the, the struggle is how do we educate millions and millions of people? 
And we can do it through forms like this as well as other forms. And uh, we have to make sure that we support the things that will help us towards those goals, such as supporting voters' rights um, and, um, and supporting environmentally conscious efforts to reduce global warming by uh, making sure that wherever there's a seed, whether it's a small seed that allows for any type of economic growth, that we make sure that that growth and development is responsible and, and favors workers. And uh, it, it is the way to go, Brother Africa, definitely. Thank you, Sister Eleanor. And Brother Haki, your response. Yeah, well, I think that I think by the 21st century, I think I certainly hope that people would certainly understand or appreciate the difference between socialism and capitalism. One of the things, though, you know, you know, I got to say that you know the bottom line for me, I think, is that that to the extent that people gravitate to socialism, I think their situation has to deteriorate. Uh, greatly, uh, I think right now, uh, given the power of propaganda and people's that, um, uh, perception, you know, of the greatness of capitalism, I think it's going to take a little bit more uh, deterioration uh, of, uh, of the economic conditions before they get to the realization that there is an alternative, and that alternative is certainly socialism. But one of the things when you talk about just sheer survival, when you talk about survival of, of the planet, survival of human beings then clearly there has to be some system in place in which cooperation and sharing is the ethos that you employ in terms of um, the longevity uh, of all involved. So to the extent that, that uh, socialism can achieve all that, uh, there is no question when you, you know, in the situation of capitalism, uh, when you ask, when you talk about sharing, you talk about caring, and you talk about working together, those things are sort of antithetical to the very premise of capitalism, which says that it's all about individuals. It's all about the um, the enhancement of of, 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 of of wealth to the exclusion of all others. And so, anytime you project that kind of individualism, where nothing matters but you, then the kind of injustices, the kind of suffering, the kind of despair you inflict on other human beings. It's really inconsequential, and so this is the problem in terms of capitalism. So one reason why we have to have socialism, and if, and if Africa they come united on one socialist system, as Brother Kwame, Kwame Ture says, there's no question about it. There's no power on this planet to be able to stop Africa. And given Africa's history, in terms of its long traditional uh, appeal uh, to the to the to the human uh, to the human um, uh, uh, right aspect of human existence. Uh, Africa stands the best chance, and this may be some may procedures are very, very prejudicial, but I think just in terms of when you look at your tradition of the history in terms of Africa, much of the history has been all about collectivism. So I think with that kind of mindset, with that kind of spiritual development that permeating throughout Africa, I think with the economic prowess, I think you create a situation where not only Africa would benefit, but the world in its entirety will prevent it. Now, some people say that's all idealism, but I think based upon the history, and look at the history in terms of the values that the, the traditional African society holds, 
And it seems to me that clearly, uh, you know, that that potential in terms of, you know, doing those things which is in the benefit of all humanity uh, has a better chance of prevailing in a situation if it existed in Africa. Thank you, Brother Haki. And Brother Anthony, when we speak about Pan-Africanism, you know, socialism is a component of it. Your response, Brother Anthony. It is indeed a component of it. As a matter of fact, um, at the 5th Pan-African uh, African Congress uh, in 1945, uh, Pan-Africanism was, uh, is correctly defined as the total liberation and unification of Africa under scientific socialism. We have that as the objective of the All-African People's Revolutionary Party, GC, because that is the objective that would solve the major problems confronting African people at home and in the diaspora. And it is achievable if we critically organize and politically educate ourselves. And uh, we have to teach ourselves our true history and our true, whole, our true role in the development of humanity. And uh, people can find out more about Pan-Africanism by visiting our website, www.a-aprp-gc.org. And you can find out more about the history of our party, our objective, Pan-Africanism, and uh, the developments in the struggle to achieve our liberation. So uh, thank you for having me on the program tonight. And thank you uh, to the fellow panelists and the listening audience. And we thank you, Brother Anthony, for your contribution and all of our panelists' contributions for today's program, as well as our listening audience. If I can make a couple of announcements before we close out, and stating that if you haven't purchased your book yet, please do so. Support Pan-African Roots as they publish a new book titled Volume 1 and 2, titled We Demand the Full Disclosure and Dignization of All African Era Records. You, got, you can get more information on this book and how to purchase it by going to the website www.a-aprp.gc.org. The author is Bob Brown. The name of the book again is We Demand the Full disclosure, and digitization of all slavery era records. My voice is getting a little hoarse, so bad with me. And also, if you haven't responded yet, please do so. <coughs> Excuse me. The African Weather Association will be taking this annual Black History, Education and Culture Travel Challenge this year to Cuba from July 23rd. To the 31st, they be visiting three areas in Cuba, three provinces, Guantanamo, San Diego, 
and have venom. If you're interested, please contact them. You can contact them by phone at 804-549-7492 or 202-714-9435 or just email them at African Awareness Association 2 at Gmail. Also, we would like to acknowledge um, one of our Freedom Fighters who just recently made a transition and we'll be doing a a program and give, and give him some proper acknowledgement. Our brother Clyde Bellacore, who's one of the co-founders of the American Indian Movement, and we'd like to send out solidarity to the progressive and revolutionary forces in Guinea, who will be celebrating Sacred Secretary-ism for the last hundred years. They are having programs all year long in reviving the works and the commitment and life of our revolutionary Pan-African brother, Ahmed Secretary, the first president of Guinea. We send our solidarity to the old progressive and revolutionary forces. Like always, Africa on the Move is a community project of the African Awareness Association. It comes on a weekly basis. You can listen to us and join us every Sunday evening starting at 7 p.m. Eastern Time. If you have any views or comments about this program, please email us at AfricaOnTheMove2 at gmail.com. I'm your host, Brother Africa. Like always, you can subscribe to Go Forward Apple and back with Novel. We're going to speak truth to the powerless and the powerful and try to give you what you need and not, you want, and not what you want. We leave you with a thought today which states that to do nothing is, is to be nothing. Our people need your help. Mother Africa need your help. We ask you the best way you can help our people, help Mother Africa, and make your proper contribution to humanity is to be organized. Brothers, sisters, those who want freedom, just equality for all. The best way to do this is go and join an organization that is fighting for the liberation, unification of your people, of Mother Africa, as well as for a better humanity. This is the best way you can make your contribution. We encourage you, please do that. And also, have spread the word to help build this particular program by sharing this program with others with your network. So until next time, like always, Africa is on the move, and we'll leave you with some sounds of sweet liberation music. We thank you for allowing us to come home this evening. And this has been Africa on the Move. Lucky Land Plus, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.